my fellow Westorians. Welcome back. It's another Sunday, another fun day, as we call them as of now. <laughs> then we're very happy to be here. In this episode, we'll continue our discussion on the early first men. Attempt to finish that off for now by concluding with the pact, which signals the beginning of the Age of Heroes. So we're not going to get to the Age of Heroes, but we are getting that set up. The Age of Heroes will be a topic that lingers a bit longer than some of these others because there's a lot more information on it, a lot of names, a lot more direct rabbit holes. So that'll be fun. But we're not there yet. And this topic is quite awesome as well on its own merit. The pact is super cool, super interesting, surrounded by a lot of factors, a lot of high magic. Uh, one big question today is how did the first men start using and acquiring the magic of the children. What transpired to make that happen and the events around that? So it should be a good episode again. And I'm thankful for all of you being here today, whether you're listening to the podcast version edited after the live stream or whether you're part of the live stream or whether you're catching the live stream replay on YouTube. We appreciate it equally. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Let's get to it. I heard the clink of ice, which only means that Sean has some kind of beverage that he just took a drink from. What the heck is it this time? I do have a beverage, as always. I want to point out, I think we've been calling it Sunday Funday since you're the worst, yeah. not just now. <laughs> <laughs> right you're on. the worst, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Uh, Good said. I have, again, a bang concoction. Oh. It's very similar to last week. I think I still have the blue protein, naked drink, along with the blueberry bang, but also watermelon, strawberry, sparkling ice oh, mix. Nice. This episode sponsored by Bang. <laughs> no, I, I wish. <laughs> now, this episode is not sponsored by Bang, but it is sponsored by GiveHerGifts.com, G-I-V-H-E-R, Gifts.com. Get 10% off with the code Westeros. Uh, yeah, if Bang was sponsoring us, that would be pretty cool too, but <laughs> they've probably never heard of us. Speaking of ice, over on Nina's blog, which of course is goodqueenalley with one L.tumblr.com, asking or rather answering a question that was asked to her about ice being melted down into two Valyrian steel blades that have Targaryen colors and what's the possible symbolism or concept behind all that. So that's a very interesting question, and you'll want to head over there to see her answer. You can also get bonus episodes of History of Westeros through patreon.com slash history of Westeros or going to Westro, historyofwesteros.com and sending us a one-time donation. We yeah. also appreciate any questions you have to send. Participation in each episode is most welcome and encouraged. A lot of times you all ask us great, interesting questions that take us into new and interesting places. And that is awesome. And it's one of the reasons why we like doing this as a live stream. Can I say... In terms of ice being melted down, someone pointed something out on Twitter that I want to point out that's really obvious to me now. Hmm. I'm like, ice was melted down into two swords, right? Yeah. Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper. Yeah. It's Ned Stark and Catelyn Stark. 
No. It's literally oh. Catelyn Stark and Ed, Ned Stark. It, like, I know, right? I just, <laughs> I wish good. I knew. I was just some random person. The person wasn't saying that they thought of it, so I don't feel bad not crediting them. They were like, I read this. And I was like, wow. It does kind of apply. Yeah. And they it, were, it, yeah. They were, they were, they were, they were sundered around that time, too. Like, we yeah. never got to see each other again. <laughs> uh, anyway, fun fact. Yeah. For you. That's pretty good. I wonder if George, if that even occurred to George. Maybe that's one of those ones that maybe it's just kind of an accident, but maybe very intentional. Yeah. It had to. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I be. bet he worked through it. I bet he knew he had a good one there. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I love that. I I mean, I've I've brought this up a few times. There's just infinite analysis of this content. Yeah. Like, at least you've got to be like a world leading expert. Never mind a Shea and the people in our circle of friends and you know, even I am coming into it relatively new, but still with surrounded by experts and going to cons and doing these podcasts. And there's still new stuff. There's still things that we haven't realized. Yeah, that's yet. book and two, just, that right there, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's really incredible, huh? <laughs> yeah, that book also, two came uh, out in 1998. <laughs> man, yeah. Uh, also, a uh, segue a little bit from you uh, kind of inviting questions and uh, interaction with the fandom. I, th- I think we did talk at least a little bit about it last week, but it was a discussion in a, a chat. I think uh, Christina is an archaeologist. She's oh, been pretty active recently. Nice. And and they were talking about the idea that, that the migration of the first men across the the arm or, you know, however they came across that. Migration goes two ways. It seems like there might have been <laughs> some entities going from Westeros to Essos. It, it, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence of the children or Weirwood or giants, as far as we know, anywhere in uh, in Essos. And I, I, I thought that maybe it could just be as simple as, you know, the desert barrier. You know, if the children are mostly living in forested areas and have to cross through mountain passes and deserts, maybe they're not as motivated. And they might not be as motivated simply because they're, their culture, you know, maybe they yeah. don't feel the same need or have the same curiosity to expand and explore. And uh, I think it could be the werewolves. Maybe that's why there's because there may werewolves may only be in Westeros, and if they wanted to stay close to those, want or, or need to stay near yeah. them, yeah. that doesn't but, explain the Ifakevron. Yeah, which we, is, exa- yeah, exactly, which we talked about. We, that's part of this that we did discuss a little bit, but they don't have werewolves, so either they have their own thing, or maybe they're they're severed from that, and that's part of why the they shade of the evening different. trees. <laughs> yeah, so that's a that's a, a a bit of a puzzle. Um, I mean, we can discuss the Evacavron a little more when we get to that part of Essos. But one thing I want to say, um, slight correction there. There are gi- lots of giants in Essos. Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't so know there's, All yeah, right. there's bones well. of giants. There's different giant species. There's evidence potentially that the hairy men of Ib are related to the giants because giants are very hairy, right? Or um, So that's a distinct possibility. And that's something we get into in our episode on giants called When Giants Roam. So that's that's better discussed there. But yeah, it's a good question, Sean, because why would it just go one way? We talked about the first men back and forth, uh, maybe other species, things we haven't even mentioned, like megafauna, you know, things like that. But yeah, I think you're right. The desert barrier is a big reason. Um, but of course, as people bring up in the chat, every time we bring it up, what nor in a desert at the time. Yeah, I think parts of it probably were yeah. because of the the mountains aren't new. Um, and mountains, high mountains do cause deserts on the other side. That's a, kind of a normal thing. But that doesn't mean the desert was as big or as widespread. You know what I mean? But but this is probably something that happened. The desert probably formed like many, many, many millennia ago. But 
I'm no expert on deserts farming, so uh, <laughs> don't uh, take that with too much authority there. Just a strong... Uh, Other strong things could still affect deserts thought. or mountains and their interactions, like just the directions that wind flow, which side mm. the ocean is on, yeah, things like exactly. that. So. so we have a uh, super chat from TKOK Podcast Network. Shout out to our friends over there. What's going on, Tommy? He says, was listening to last week's episode and he's talked about why green seers didn't see the first men invasion. Joe didn't see the ironborn taking the Winterfell, but as the sea drowning people. Yeah, right. I wonder, maybe they did see it. They just didn't know how to, they just wasn't anything they could do about it or they couldn't get their act together soon enough. I mean, if, they, if they'd never even seen a person before then, it'd be yeah. super bizarre. Yeah, what the heck is that? Or maybe they thought it was like, for example, there's a couple of, in both the in both Lord of the Rings, I think it is the case in Lord of the Rings, certainly the case in The Witcher, which, has, which borrows some of the Lord of the Rings lore for their elves. The elves are portrayed as looking at humans as a short-term thing. The humans show up and they're like kind of annoying and dangerous, but they're like, oh, they'll will burn out, they'll all die off. And then we'll be, you know, they're like a lot of other species they've seen come and go. That's kind of what they expected. And maybe that's what the children saw because they they saw the short lifespans of humans and their not lack of connection to nature and their lack of wielding of supernatural powers. Just similar to the elves, by the way, who had in all these different stories tend to have magic uh, well before humans. Uh, so that I had a thought, has a lot of parallels. Along there. that line. Go ahead. Yeah, I had a thought along that line too that it might be that they, however aware of it they were, that maybe they aren't used to things happening so quickly. Mm, right? Okay. They're yeah. on a longer they're lifespan. Talking. They're more mm. connected to trees and nature. They've been kind of isolated, but men move fast, right? Mm. We have children more often. We're more ambitious, and they just might not have anticipated how quickly it was going to be at their doorsteps. Yeah, they may have had visions of homesteads and even castles and maybe not realize there would be thousands of them. Maybe you thought this was like, oh, there's going to be a couple of these or something. And they're like, oh, they're going to build yeah. this. And it's like, no, they're going to build lots of these. <laughs> you know, that's They might have thought yeah. that it would take thousands and thousands of years to come to fruition and uh, not just a few generations or whatever. Yeah. You know, and that is a good segue to the re uh, our first topic today, the proliferation of the First Men. We talked about them uh, arriving in Dorne, taking all the nice best places in Dorne and staking them out and building homes and farms and whatever they could do, establishing castles. And given the natural progression of migration, as discussed last time, we saw that the peoples of Dorne are also among the oldest, if not the oldest in all of Westeros. Some of the lands they staked would have been the first lands anyone ever staked or laid claim to on this continent. And we noted as an aside that given the shape of the Arm of Dorne and the possibility that the Stormlands was accessible via the bridge directly, it's quite possible those are among the oldest as well. Perhaps the second oldest, if we're trying to do some rankings here. <laughs> but the kingdom that comes next, most certainly, would be the Reach, as it shares borders with both of those two kingdoms. So anyone leaving Dorne to go north would have to either go to the Stormlands or to the Reach. And similar to the Stormlands, if you're going north from there, you're either going into maybe the area that's now known as the crown lands, which is maybe the river lands because back then there certainly wasn't any crown lands. Anyway, the most ancient parts of say old town's history are unknown to us and the maesters both, but it has been a prized location since its inception, the mouth of a major river that leads to the sea. That's a hugely valuable thing for trade. And as it turns out, the name old in old town is an understatement. So we know people have been in the reach for a long time, but crack claw point, like I said, 
and then the Riverlands, and then the West. People would start heading into the West. Now, we're going to have a little more detail on some of these individual locations when we discuss those individual regions later in the book. That is how the book is laid out. So that's somewhat how we'll cover it. We do occasionally jump ahead to grab some detail like we did with Dorne, but usually we'll just take them one by one in the order that they are in the book. A vast amount of completely unrecorded history happened during all this time, right? Incredible number of kingdoms, families, conflicts with native species, adventures, founding events. It would have been a time of firsts. Firsts of the first men, right, Sean? (laughs) Yes. And the first humans to ever see rivers, like the Trident, the Blackwater, the Mander, the Honeywine, the White Knife. The larger rivers would be significant borders in these early days. Not only would they be great places to live, but the, the first men wouldn't be looking to cross a whole lot of rivers. Certainly they would cross some, but right, they're not a seafaring people. And that's, you know, rivers are different than seas, but it's the same difficulty. If you're not a seafaring people, you're not likely to be doing a lot of crossing of big rivers, at least not via ship. You might find fords and do things like that. But even seafaring people, it's not quite the same thing as crossing rivers. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. You use different style craft are used. And, and you know, we're talking time when they wouldn't necessarily know a whole lot about that sort of thing. <laughs> Some maybe would, but that kind of knowledge wouldn't be widespread as, as, as far as we know. But there'd also be the God's Eye and lesser lakes like Red Lake in the Reach and Long Lake in the North. Lakes are, of course, as sources of fresh water and fish would be likely targets for early settlers. The Western Mountains, the Cranugs, the Vale of Erin, the feature later known as Alyssa's Tears, for example. Imagine being the first person to see that. The first sightings of natural harbors that would much later become trade hubs, but would have looked even appealing to ancients way back then. Uh, Someone was the first ever to try a Westerosi lemon or apple or whatever fruits are native in these different places. Someone else ate something they shouldn't have. Several somethings, probably. The the first unsafe mushrooms, for example. (laughs) Someone might debate us on that one. You know, like, no, those mushrooms were were great, man. (laughs) Someone was the first to have a Westerosi lemon cake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) There would be the first rune set down on a rock or a tree or what have you. The first mine, the first farm, the first walls, the first castles and villages. Someone brought the first boat to Westeros and someone else built the first boat with wood cut from trees cut down in Westeros itself. First items made of bronze brought to and made there. So many firsts, you could really just go on here forever. I, I, I had a couple of thoughts when, you know, thinking about the different firsts that there would be in some some were kind of maybe darker, like there would be a first murderer and a first trial. True, first, you true. Know? But there would also be a, a first work of art. And yeah. First, yeah. I don't know how much yeah. writing was, I mean, that's almost the point. Is there, this is kind of pre- Yeah, they have runes is all they know, had as like, far as we know, yeah. Yeah, there may, may be some rudimentary symbols they could sketch out, but I don't know if there would be a book. But uh, Yeah, probably not anything like but that. But that, that got me to thinking about another thing that might permeate other thoughts throughout here is that this is sort of, like when we try to compare and contrast to the real world, the first man coming across is it's kind of like two different moments from our history. Hmm. One is the natives coming across from Asia to the Americas. Yeah. And then the other is Europeans coming across from Europe to the Americas once the natives are already here, right? So there's sort of like, hmm. if, when natives had come across, if there were already 
being children of the forest or whatever, we're already here, you know, but it's, uh, that wasn't quite the real world scenario. So we get two different sort of comparisons to make here as the, their first to this new world, but they're also not really the only ones here. So they're going to have some European parallels to how they treat the people who were already here. But the European Mm -hmm. world was more advanced than the first men coming across. They did already have books and boats and, you know, but, more technology and such. Yeah, know. yeah. This is also where we need to remember that there wasn't just one monolithic culture called the First Men. Perhaps it somewhat evolved that way after settling in Westeros. But they would have come with different cultures and, and languages. And at some point, the the locals amalgamated. The, Nor- the First Men started speaking their own language called the Old Tongue. And... That became the language throughout Westeros for a very long time until the development of the common tongue, which came much later. Now, you still see the old tongue spoken. We've seen it spoken in the books by the giants, and for example, and the children use it a little bit just briefly when speaking with Bran to refer to what the giants refer to them as, for example, and as well, Tormund, and a lot of the wildlings still speak it. He speaks it to uh, Mag the Mighty, for example. And there's probably a few other examples like that. But anyway, it's pretty neat to see and think about. That would have taken a very long time to happen, most likely. I mean, it it started probably early on and then continued to develop. But these are, these are very slow developing things a lot of times. And of course, languages are never finished, right? <laughs> I mean, English is still evolving. Yeah. Every language is still changing, even if it's just the vernacular that changes. But new words are added to the dictionary every year. You know, it's so well established that little changes like that wouldn't don't change the big picture. But if you think back to the beginning, when language was being codified for the first time, you better believe there were some things like that. They had to make decisions and, and work with a lot of difficulty of, of non-standardization. And that would have been the case here, too. There's no standard. There wasn't a citadel back then telling everyone how to speak the old tongue. Actually, maybe there was a citadel, but (laughs) it probably... That's also a thing that developed gradually and may have, in fact, impacted language in Westeros. But that is just a guess. Yeah, there's definitely... uh, It's relatively new in history, even in the history of the English language, for there to be the standardization that there is even though it isn't really completely standard, right? Even though, even if there are some ostensible rules, we don't always use them all. I mean, gonna isn't a word, right? <laughs> but but everyone <laughs> knows what you mean when you say, I'm gonna go to the store. And so, that, you know, if, if people understand what you mean, well, then that's communicating. That's what language is oh, supposed to do. Oh, that is a word, but, I think, probably. Yeah, it may now yeah, be maybe. a word. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised uh, if it's in a dictionary at this point. But uh, one thing that did help homogenize language or standardize it a little bit, for better or worse, is that communications that would happen between leaders, like the King of England would have letters sent out back and forth to different cities within discussing taxes or wars or whatever. And all they all use different words and spellings and letters even. Like there's, I don't think I'm exaggerating. At one point there were like 24 different spellings of the word church. Whoa. <laughs> like the, the I, the U, and the E could all be interchangeable. CH could have also been just C or K. You know, oh, any wow. combination of any permutation of all those mix-ups, but just whatever the scribes for the King of England were using, wow. all the other cities just fell in line and they started using that too, you know? Oh. Uh, and so, yeah, of course, just like 
making the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary and did a lot. Shakespeare, just because he wrote so much and so many people read what he wrote, his grammar, his spelling started to be copied by other people. Interesting. So it, it's interesting, some sort of informal things through history that started to standardize language, but then there were some formal attempts. But even still, like you said, it still keeps growing and evolving. But imagine when there was no yeah. king of Westeros to be writing letters back and forth, how different <laughs> people even, would have pronounced yeah. and spelled words. I, one of the things I appreciate, I, I would say I don't appreciate, but I think it's interesting as well. She hates it. it. Yeah. I, I, well, is that is <laughs> algorithmic, um, is algorithms is how they censor certain words. And so people on places like TikTok have to use other words in order to yeah. skirt the algorithm, to both be. when saying it out loud and when typing it. So, for example, instead of the word sex, they might use segs, S-E-G-G-S. <laughs> yeah. And so that is now part of our cultural vernacular when it wouldn't have been before. And that is just because of these algorithms. And it's really neat because someone sees it and they immediately get it. Yeah. They're like, oh, it's a way to get but, around but the, the filter. The it's like how an ancient person might see a shovel and be like, oh, that would be really useful. <laughs> <laughs> having never yeah. seen one before. <laughs> like you immediately get it <laughs> without having used it. Or... Yes. <laughs> That's really fascinating. Another, this I don't even have this in the notes, but it's something that just occurred to me and is really important given the name of this series that we're all such big fans of is songs. Songs would be another way that words proliferate because they're very memorable. They really, uh, they stick in your memory more so than just regular phrases. The, the attachment of music just helps you. Yeah. Think about how we learn the alphabet. Good point. We make a song out of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. great point. Yeah, good said. So that is quite possible. And that's also a thing that would spread. Like you have something like, a, even in ancient times, you might have wandering musicians. I mean, their, their instruments would be relatively primitive, but there's nothing primitive about the human voice, right? That people have been singing since, since babies have been popping out of the womb crying, you know? <laughs> so it's a super ancient thing. And I believe that's not an unlikely way for some of the you know, mutual agreement of how words are used and how what language, what words mean what would have been shared and how that proliferated. Uh, so that's pretty cool, y'all, right? One of the other pieces of evidence for cultural separation and, and diversity amongst the first men that we touched on briefly is the variety of government styles. We saw that example of the lemon moot, for lack of a better word, and we have the king's moot and sort of proto-democratic ideas like that. But we also have tales of early high kings and, and things like that. And surely there were other chieftain-style uh, Alliter uh, iterations, I almost said alliterations there. They probably had that too, alliterations as well, yes. We're just talking about songs after all. But there's things like the f the first men, the king of the first men of in the Barrowlands, who apparently claimed king uh, dominion over all the first men, which seems a bit much for such an early time. But hey, you know, it not, couldn't have stopped him from you declaring say, it. <laughs> he, he declared first. Yeah, he declared first. I, I called it. So he was the first person to discover dibs. Yes. <laughs> That's what it says. Like. Dibs. dibs on dibs. <laughs> it was a very powerful discovery. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny, but also, I mean, it really is a lot of how history has been yeah, defined. You're right. First, first is, yeah, first one there gets it. You're right. And, unless the, someone stronger comes along to take it. Yeah, there's the rule of dibs and the rule of might makes right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those are, that's the reason kids kind of figure those things out, right? It's as as a child, looking at our species or the version of our species and 
in this fictional setting. <laughs> things that we learned as young humans are also things we learned as a young species, perhaps. Uh, maybe there's echoes of that. When we're looking at all this, one thing that occurs to me, and it's probably occurred to a lot of y'all as well, maybe you haven't put it into words, is that it can be pretty difficult to separate, as Sean was expressing here, talking about, well, when did books come? When did they have this? When did they not have this? It's difficult to separate super ancient from ultra ancient. And I, which of those is longer? <laughs> which is older, super ancient from ultra ancient? Yeah. That's kind of my point. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> but the... I think ultra. Yeah, I think maybe ultra ancient does sound more than super ancient. But that's kind of the point, right? We don't know, like 4,000 years ago versus 5,000 years ago, we can't really tell the difference. But there's probably pretty substantial differences in some ways. And also some things that probably aren't that different. You know what I mean? So... Things that are attributed in the Age of Heroes, when we get to that, we're going to see all sorts of things that are absolutely anachronistic. Like you've got knights riding around way before knights were a thing. You've got just other examples like that of things that don't actually work for the timeline they're said to be in. Um, but that'll be something uh, for us to think about when we get there. So yeah, folks, if you've got... Now, we talked about... First man, we talked about children, we talked about giants. It's finally time for us to mention the other possibility, the idea that there was another race or still is perhaps that lives beneath the sea or that came from over the sea from the far west. Here's our first quote of the day. But on Westeros, from lands of always winter to the shores of the summer sea, only two peoples existed, the children of the forest and the race of creatures known as the giants. A possibility arises for a third race to have inhabited the Seven Kingdoms and the Dawn Age, but it is so speculative that it need only be dealt with briefly. Among the Ironborn, it is said that the first of the first men to come to the Iron Islands found the famous sea stone chair on Oldwick, but that the isles were uninhabited. If true, the nature and origins of the chair's makers are a mystery. Maester Kurth, in his collection of Ironborn legends, Songs, of the, Drown Songs the Drowned Men Sing, has suggested that the chair was left by visitors from across the Sunset Sea. But there is no evidence for this, only speculation. Speculative that it need only be dealt with briefly. Yeah, so it's really cool um, an idea. And when we did the proper portions of Valar Reredus, we brought up the deep ones whenever we could, whenever it seemed appropriate, because there's plenty of times where they pop up throughout the books as a, as a local legend or as a concept. And certainly this book is... Uh, where they come up perhaps the most. But I have a surprise for you all. We have a surprise for you all, which is actual photographic evidence of the first time any first men <laughs> laid eyes on the Seastone chair. And you might actually recognize these two gentlemen that are <laughs> credited with the discovery. <laughs> the first photograph. <laughs> this is the first photograph in Westeros. <laughs> Folks, if you're listening to the podcast and, and don't have access to see this, we'll uh, provide a link for you. You can go to our Facebook group or Discord or wherever. We'll share this link around. What it is you're seeing is Michael Klarfeld's artwork. This is his rendering of the first man discovering the Seastone chair. And that is indeed me and Sean, <laughs> who are the, the models for this. We stood there and pointed. And <laughs> yeah, Sean had like a broom in his hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Shan took a photo and sent it out to Michael and Michael did his uh -huh. magic. 
The hardest part was finding the sea stone chair. <laughs> but, so we could point at it. And, and it turned out to not be that hard because it was just in our living room. It was like, whoa, all this time. It was really quite strange. Our living room looks like that? <laughs> yeah, strange. it needs a little No, work. no, that's silly as shit. It was just the sea stone chair was in the living room. <laughs> yeah, get real. <laughs> it is a little odd to think about, right? Why would... We've talked about the deep ones before, and I'm not sure that's the answer here, because why would people who live under the sea put a big chair up on land? It doesn't necessarily work for me. It's not out of the question, but it seems a little odd. The, the idea that they came from the West, that does make more sense. And you could also say, well, look, this history's just messed up here. Why? Surely that's just a mistake that the chair was not just put there. It's something they say. Yet, we have examples of strange black stone elsewhere in the world, don't we? Now, Sean, this is something we've talked about before, but you're just now noticing it. So I'm, I'm excited. And a lot of other folks are out there are going to be excited to hear, you know, that you picked up on this and we can use it as a springboard to uh, discuss a little bit and, and tell people where to find more discussions on it. Yeah, I was intrigued by this idea. And, and there's even other mysteries and bits that I didn't type all out here, but just got my brain stirring. Like the sea stone chair was found in old wick, right? Yeah. But where is it now? It's still there. It's on, it's on Old Wicks, not on Pike? Yeah, it's on Pike. Or was that where so it was So how did it get there? Is it heavy? How do they move yeah. it? Is it? Has it moved before? You know, so I don't even know how connected that is in any mystery or the truth <laughs> of the original tale, you know? Yeah, but, that's a good point. Yeah, I actually but, never thought about the moving of it. It didn't actually kind of slip my notice that it was not, that it moved. But you're totally right. Yeah, it can't still be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had to go to Pike because that's where it is. Yeah. So, but, you know, other thoughts just, you know, I, I think I, I stumbled across this, really. I think I just did like a search in a, in a Song of Ice and Fire. I knew we were going to talk about, you know, mm. the, the painting of this. And so I just wanted to read up a little bit on it. And I saw that the in a different section in a book, Private Iron. No, I think it was Old Town or, or yeah, Old, Old Town, Town's probably. in the Reach, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They're talking about the base of the high tower in Old Town is also constructed of some black material that's different from the rest. And there's speculation about what it might be and it seems similar to uh, i guess what the valerians sort of construction black stone but it doesn't have the same ornate design so the suspicious and it, there was a ironborn maester who would have been more familiar with the sea stone chair that thought they looked similar and so he was theorizing and Ian Bell seems to kind of dismiss this, but it made me wonder, well, I wonder if there's other examples of this and they called it fused black stone. So I had to search for that. There's a bunch of examples oh, came yeah. up and I even remembered one of the towns, I, I think old Volantis that Tyrion went through. I think I even sent you in my notes when I was reading that. I was like, what's with George making these preposterously huge walls? Like, <laughs> how can these things exist or be constructed? And, but it was also a black stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there were several others. And But I think that one or one of them was described as being black, plain black slabs of this shiny black stone. And it's like, huh, that kind of reminds me of the obelisk in 2001. Yeah. And, and I started thinking it would have maybe been a similar. I was literally thinking of our painting of us like pointing and all oh, oh, like <laughs> these sort of primitive humans discovering this Mm -hmm. somewhat unatural device, (laughs) monolith device, whatever you want to call it, you know? And, and I think in 2001, I, I, you know, I do a, I have a YouTube channel where I try to cover movies and I did a lot of research on 2001, which is very 
research worthy. It's an interesting, odd, kind of artsy sort of movie if you haven't seen it. You know, most of it's like in space and you're like going to Jupiter or whatever, but it starts off with primitive humans, like even the I don't, humanoids, you know, I don't even think they're necessarily homo sapiens. And this obelisk appears and it seems to appear at the moment that they discover tools, weapons, and, you know, I'm not sure if there's supposed to be a cause and effect involved, but then then this movie suddenly flashes forward thousands of years and it appears again at the point that we've discovered space flight. And mm. so there's no clear answer that uh, Kubrick or Clark have given about exactly what it is. But, you know, obviously there's this idea that it symbolizes on some level a, a leap forward of humankind. And I wonder if maybe the Seastone chair or some of these other constructions on some level in George's mind are meant to represent ancient moments of advancement. That's a know? great idea. I like that thought a lot, Sean, because surely George is aware of 2001 and he wrote a lot of this stuff after that. Obviously, most of the, all of this was yeah. written after 2001. He's Obviously, a sci-fi fan. Yeah. It came out in 1969, I think. So Yeah, so it's well, yeah, it's certainly well before. He's, most of all of his writing came before 2001. I mean, the book, not the year, obviously. <laughs> that gets confusing. You say before 2001, it's like, no, George started in 1996. But like, oh, that's confusing. But it's a really good point because the, the, the monolith shows up, as you said, during an, an, a point of advancement. And that could be, that's sort of similar. They discover the Seastone chair, they discover these, these islands, or they perhaps ancient humans in other places around the world where this black stone comes up is meant to signify that, or to at least make us think of that, maybe his own version of that concept. But yeah, like you said, there's, it pops up in a couple of places, the five forts, Toad Isle in, this, in uh, the Basilisk Isles has it, and Ashai has it, and that's a really important one because that's, people live there. You know? Yeah, and then of course, then we have the fused Blackstone, which is different, yeah. that, you know, you point out for the high tower and the five forts. Yeah, so there is some difference in those, and that is what we get into in our episodes on Ashai and Great Empire of the Dawn. Those are some big episodes with a lot of content that are not just about those stones, of course, but they're a big part of it, and that exploration is there. Yeah, with lots of maps and showing a kind of where they are visually and stuff like that. It's got a lot of visuals to it. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you need and, to check that episode out, Sean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do your homework. And by the way, another thing that is, uh, I guess, not known or talked about much, but what is farther to the west? Yeah. Is it is it just an ocean that connects back around to, mm -hmm. to Essos? Or is there a whole other continent of people who maybe ancient people who explored around the world that had some technology with black stones or... Maybe people from Essos went to Restos and then on and through the way we're working with these black stones. There's, it's so speculative. We should only discuss it briefly. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to discuss it lengthily. And yeah, well, yeah, no, where the stones are are along a way where someone would travel along the coasts, and, and uh, it, it just it does make sense that it's someone that that didn't live there that has come from elsewhere. Couple other points on this, Sean. Once first to answer your question about what's over there. We definitely don't know. We do know that it's been explored somewhat, but the people that explored it have never come back. And the most famous of those explorers would be Alyssa Farman and the Sun Chaser. Super awesome story. We did a whole episode on her and her adventures. And there's some evidence that maybe she found a way across, but it wasn't documented. And I think one thing that's inspired here as well 
beyond the possibility of an ancient seafaring culture that figured things out, which is not a wild thought at all. For example, the the people of the islands that are now around Australia and Indonesia, um, those folk figured out how to go really, really far in really ancient times over the sea. Like, I mean, really far. So we shouldn't put it past ancient people just because a lot of our ancestors weren't that sort. <laughs> but it is entirely possible. So it's not something that's like George is stretching the, the limits of ancient humanity's uh, abilities or anything like that, which would be fine even if he did, because you can always mix magic in there to make it make sense. You know, it would have been easy to go farther on the back of a dragon. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Very sure. But I'm not sure it would be enough to cross a whole vast ocean. The dragon might get tired. I'm just saying that's what the Polynesians did, oh, clearly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Polynesians. That's right. They had dragons back then. That's right. <laughs> now, another interesting meta-fictional um, inspiration that George might be working with a little bit here the Shanshin. Yes, the Shanshin. <laughs> the, the, they aren't named after It's you. covered by a beard. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> Shanshin, if you watched the Wheel of Time TV show, you saw them introduced right at the end of the show. And that's kind of the concept with them, which George is very well aware of Wheel of Time. Wheel of Time is an inspiration for George. And they sort of came out around the same time, George and, and Robert Jordan. Their careers intertwine in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of people compare those two quite a lot. So it's entirely possible George was thinking of this race of humans that went west long ago and then eventually returned after a huge number of generations. Thousands of years, I think. I'm, I don't even remember. And the TV show will probably change how the, 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 the time span. Point being, it doesn't really matter. The book canon versus show canon. The concept is what matters here. George may have taken that idea Maybe in reverse. Maybe some people left. <laughs> they, or maybe they will come back. I don't suppose that's going to be a part of, this, of the novels, like some bunch of ships showing up on the West Coast. If that happens, they'll be Euron ships. They won't be some heretofore unmentioned race that's coming out of nowhere. Because, hey, this isn't Wheel of Time. But... Unless he has a lot more books. Planned. Yeah, George is like, actually, <laughs> I thought maybe it would take uh, seven or eight books. But now I've decided to add a whole nother five books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's another point we need to make talking about the first men arriving in the Iron Islands. Because, for example, there wouldn't be necessarily uh, the difficulty getting there that there would be for a lot of other first men as, we're, as, as it pertains to seafaring. Because, you know, while they're not a seafaring culture, they had to have some, some ships and boats here and there, at least a few. You know, it couldn't have been a monolithic. None of them had boats. But, Anything you can see from the coast, I would think they would have explored. And that's where the Iron Islands are, are come up here because you can see, I'm pretty sure you can see the Iron Islands, if not from the West Coast, then from the mountains on the West Coast. So they would be visible. You'd know they were there. It's not, it's, 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 it's a difference between bold adventurers striking out trying to find new lands and, oh, we can actually see that over there. Let's see if we can f get there, right? It's a pretty big difference, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know, do we have an idea of how far off the coast it is, by the way? Is it like a mile or a hundred well, miles? Well, you can or? look at the maps and kind of get a general idea, but that doesn't give you, it's not going to give you numbers, I don't think, but they're not far. That's why I think they could probably be visible. I could be wrong about that, but I think because they have mountains on them too, that they should be visible from really far. I believe at sea level on earth, 
you can see about 14 miles. Okay. If you're on a ship on the ocean and there's another ship 14 miles away, you should barely be able to see it. Okay. I, actually, I guess, I suppose, I don't know for sure if your eyes are good enough, but it would be on the horizon. But yeah. if you're seeing mountains so, on the horizon, but, that would be far. That would be a lot. You could probably see a lot If the mountains are higher up, or if you're higher up, you could see way right. farther out. Like right. the degree of difference is amplified, you know? Yeah. So. And we also know that the Ironborn, because they sail in long ships, they don't do a lot of like, they don't have, they're not big on open ocean themselves. So their way of raiding was always to just stick to the coast. So you would think that they'd, they'd leave their islands and they, they, this wouldn't really, that wouldn't really fit what I just described if they have to go over a large stretch of ocean in order to get to the coast in the first place. But um, anyway, we don't have precise numbers here. Here's an p- interesting point from Nina. Maybe it's a symbol of their dominance over the Iron Islands, even in the absence of these sea monsters or whatever they are, since the Deep Ones are supposed to be human-sea monster hybrids. Perhaps they combined the ominous, nefarious dominance of the sea monster race which, with human deference to royalty to create a lasting monument to their power. That's a cool idea. Then, as the Deep Ones faded from living memory and fully human people populated the Iron Islands, the Seastone Chair lost that sort of element, that supernatural element, and, and kind of evolved naturally into just a str- straight-up political symbol, straight-up symbol of power, a regular symbol of power, rather than some, something with a supernatural past. Although, clearly, there is some memory of, of, of this without the precision uh, that we can attach it to any one culture, just there's a legend that it was there. You know, there isn't much more to it than that. But this does make sense because that is a, an aspect of the Deep Ones is they bred with humans, both in Lovecraft lore and in apparently in uh, Planetos or Taros, for lack of a better word for this planet. So yeah, if there were a, a human hybrids, they could have existed and worshipped this chair or had one of their own sit on this chair and humanity was terrified of them and drove them away, sent them back into the sea or slaughtered them all. That sounds like something people would do. <laughs> also, aren't there stories of squishers? Aren't squishers yes. sort of like amphibious humanoids? Could they be what the deep ones are or what they're mating with humans could be? Or, or I mean, maybe it's just completely... No, fable, you're, but... you're totally right. That that We have speculated on that exact same thing in Brienne's chapters in Crackle Point. We, we did take that as an opportunity to, to mention that theory because yeah, that's, that's a, it's a big part of, of it. Um, in, in, in the Lovecraft world, they, they start off looking human and then gradually their squisher qualities come out. They're not called squishers in his world. They're just straight up deep ones, but they're called squashers. squashers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Squanchers, squatchers. Yeah. It's like church There's like 50 different spellings of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so they just, the, the, the fish aspects come, come more slowly, like over time, your eyes start to bulge out. Your skin gets a little scalier. <laughs> it's really creepy. <laughs> the existence of the Drown God. Um, we'll use that as a segue to the next part. We have the Storm God, who is the sort of antagonist of the Drown God. And others of that ilk remind us that the first men worshipped a variety of proto-gods, most of whom seem to have been forgotten. Though perhaps they are represented still in runes that remain undeciphered. After all, that is an important thing to remember, we have a, there's a lot of runes on a lot of rocks and a lot of things out there, but most of it is just completely undeciphered. So there's a wealth of undiscovered knowledge about the first men that George has opted. Come on, Sam. Yeah, come on, Sam. Go decipher it. (laughs) Get on that. I mean, there's other storm gods. There's not just the storm god of the Ironborn. There's, there's said to be the one in the Stormlands, right? There's a storm god there, the one that 
blew down the different versions of Storm's End before they had a successful building of it. And in that same tale of Elenai, right? There's the rain god and Elenai. There's all these tales like uh, Renly, for example. There's this quote, look at me, look at me. I'm the rain god. Like, who's the rain god, right? That's kind of an interesting yeah. note when you think about that. But it fits in with this sort of Stormlands mythology of Elenai, who was a god of the or the daughter of the god of the sea and and the goddess of the wind. So she was a sounds like a kind of like a Greek figure, right? Even that name is somewhat Greek. But yeah. this is an example of a human breeding with a godlike child, which is also very, you know, real world mythology uh, style. And it opens up the same concept. Like we just talked about deep ones breeding with humans. Well, here we have gods breeding with humans and creating hybrids. So one of the reasons this is a really important concept is because we're, like I said at the beginning, is how did humans acquire these supernatural abilities of the children? But there's also these other things. The Age of Heroes, which we're, we're building up to, is this story of humans doing wildly supernatural things, living long periods of time, siring, you know, hundreds of children or doing deeds that are not possible for regular people. If any of those things are true, this could be the mechanism or related to the mechanism for how humans acquired such great powers, which became diluted over time as the original bloodlines were inserted into humanity's uh, various families. Over time, that got diluted sort of the way the Valyrians did, you know, things like that. Um, so anyway, yeah. That's a lot. Sean, what do you, how do you react to all that? It's pretty cool, huh? Did this story of Ellen and I, is that, is she part of the children of the forest? No, it's just a story. We don't know. It's just an, okay, it's, it's from yeah. the gods that humans worshipped before, before the children adopting, before adopting the old gods. Yeah, so this is, no, these are, these yeah. are, these are the gods that the first men brought with them from across the waters, okay. apparently. And so, right, and so, okay. So before this the is, children, before the first men adopted the worship of the children, they this is they worshipped gods like these. So a thing that I was wondering was the how they're referred to so often as the old gods. That's such a common statement that is made, and I wondered if that was just like a collective name for, like we 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 might say the Greek gods, or you know, just collectively we're thinking of like you know. Zeus and Jupiter and Hades or whatever. And, and even the Greeks might've said the gods and they just meant all these characters. And even aside from those specifics, uh, their, their names or whatever, there was, you know, the God of lightning, the God of the sea. And that's pretty common across cultures, even if they have different names. And a lot of times we even see how they're clearly tr transferred from one culture to mm. the next. They may get some new names, but they're basically the same stories and, and characters or whatever. It's, you know, the, the clearest of this is going from the Greeks to the Romans. But you see all sorts of examples of how even Christianity, which only has one God, was still pulling stories from other multi-God religions. Yeah. And anyway, in my mind, I was wondering if this is just something George hasn't bothered to give them all names, or if it's so far in the past has been forgotten, or if the children just thought of them also as the old gods and there weren't specific individual characters or roles that there were. And, and Nina seemed to be kind of suspicious of that. I even saw that at one point, uh, Mr. Lewin called them, they said that they had secret names, which still implies that there are different individual ones. Sam said they were nameless gods, which implies that maybe they still have certain roles, 
But it's from what we talked about so far, it just seems like they're just like past generations of children that have been absorbed into the trees yes. or, you know, the, the collective memory or nature that's around in them. In which case they had a not name. Individuals. Yeah. In which case, what, in which case they had a name well, and they yeah, still true. drew a child that remembers yeah. another child that has gone into the trees, into the old gods, will know a name for at least one god. Yeah. Yeah, because they did have names. George and Carol. George and Carol. (laughs) Carol the Green Seer. But yeah, but then it was like an extra monkey wrench when when this, you know, Nina pointed out that Renly talked about the rain god and this L&I story. And so that made me start to think that, well, maybe the old gods, maybe the the first men who absorb the religion of the children Maybe they didn't purely take it on. Maybe they incorporated into the gods that they already had. And then maybe at this point, it's so old and lost that it's not the case necessarily anymore. But I can imagine for generations, for many generations, they may have believed in or worshipped or whatever, the children of the forests, old gods, but also still had their god of thunder and their god of the sea and such. So I think you're totally right. I think they would have kept them together. I, I don't you think know, you just, old, old beliefs don't go so easily. And I, why can't gods coexist? There's not like, yeah, I mean, like if they're just, if these yeah. are matters beyond mortal understanding, you're not sitting here going, well, our God killed that God. And especially if you worship natural forces, like there's still, if you worship the waves and there's still waves, yeah, then- the thunder is still happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing that, you know, happens a lot, I mean, what John was talking about is that, you know, we take on gods as our own, we take on stories and all that. Just the idea that if the children of the forest had certain stories about their gods, about their mm. past, that it might have been transmuted into a story about the storm god and the rain god and oh, element, you know, like yeah. that might have been just this is just one example, but that might have been a story that the children of the forest told and that then they mm-hmm. turned into a story about, you know, not in this particular case. I, I do think it sounds more like human behavior considering it's, you know, talking about eventually castles, you know, and all yeah, that. Yeah, but that's a but, great idea, Shay, because what if you have like the notion of, or looking at it both ways, really meaning stories that the children tell or stories that humans tell about the children thinking that it's the act of their gods. Meaning the children have, the children, the green seers of the children have some powers over nature and, and perhaps significant powers over nature in some cases, especially if the breaking of the arm and things like that were real, uh, were real supernatural events. Then, yeah, early first men might see these things and think, oh, that's the Lord of the Waves or yeah, the Lord no, of the Sky's doing that. And then the later, the yeah, yeah. That, that's how that's how they would attribute it. But then later they would be like, oh, actually, that was the children of the forest. That was the Green Seers, which would also go a long way as to explaining why they eventually pushed their old gods aside in favor of the children's old gods, because <laughs> over time they would see, look, these are the ones that have actual real power. <laughs> We've got rather than real stories evidence, yeah. or explanations for nature around them, they see the 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 yeah, as you said, the real power. You know, a, another quick point I wanted to make is that um, it's relatively unique to Christianity to only this is the only God, and you have to reject all other gods. Most other religions aren't really like that, That's and true. I don't know if the uh, the um, the children's gods or worship or the, the older gods of the first man coming across would have necessarily been like that. So it might've been a little quicker and easier to absorb or for gods to coexist. Like Shea was saying, like, even if we have these gods and they have these gods, why can't they all be the gods? And maybe you can still pick and choose which ones to worship or why, but it doesn't mean the other 
don't exist or you abandon them or they're they're the lore behind them or whatever. That's a great point. Yeah, well point, Sean. The, especially too because that's one. Well, I was going to say that's one thing we appreciate about Victorian Greyjoy. Oh yeah, how <laughs> <laughs> oh, he he ponders over these things. Yeah, Victorian mm. asks very interesting Victorian supernatural philosophical questions. Type of things. Yeah, might as well sacrifice to them all. Yeah, he's like, just in yeah. case. Yeah, he's like, well, he's like, ooh. An excuse to sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he likes it. He likes it. But yeah, like the children, like, don't seem like the types that would be like, no, there's only our gods. They're the only real forces on this whole planet. That doesn't sound like they're sort of, you know, Zen sort of take things as they are, like acceptance of nature and uh, not needing answers, right? So they, it seems like too presumptive, too arrogant to declare that yours are the only, you don't really, we, we do get that eventually with the Andal. Coming of the Andals is where you get that sort of dogmatic, like, no, ours is the one true God. And the Ironborn are kind of like that too. They just aren't powerful enough to <laughs> force that on many people. <laughs> but that is kind of how they're, they're, they're most devout worshipers really do think that all the others are demons and not real gods. That is what Aaron says, after all. But even Victorian <laughs> doesn't fully believe him. So it goes to show how even a devout guy like him still doesn't uh, fully uh, believe the, uh, the the party line there. Yeah. Is anyone else out there rage against the machine in their head right uh-huh. now? <laughs> Here is your only god. <laughs> I kind of don't know if I can appropriately finish those lyrics, but <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's an appropriate reference there. So just a few other examples, like when we talked about, I think it was in the Sworn Sword, where there was that mention of that other deity, and then Godric Borel in A Feast for Crows, or A Dance of Dragons on the Sisters mentioned gods of old as the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies, Nina reminds us of those ones, those are good, good examples. And the men, like, because the sisters had different forces of nature that brought boon to them, right? That's one of the reasons you would worship a certain force of nature over others is that it's particularly valuable to you, right? Bringing back my example of desert magic not causing blizzards to happen, (laughs) you wouldn't worship the snow god when you live in the desert, right? That just wouldn't, it doesn't, it's not really how that works, does it? And further setup of the concept of the... Age of Heroes, we're going to have characters like Garth Greenhand. Nina mentions him as someone you could potentially see as a deity. He was somewhat worshipped, and you can see why, given the tales attributed to him. He fathered just an absurd number of children, and apparently similar to tales of Johnny Appleseed, where anything he touched bloomed, and including possibly the deserts. Well, that does sound pretty godlike, and for us to suss out a legend like that and try to make sense of it, in the real world, we would say it's just fancy. But here we would say it's probably not just fancy. It's probably part fancy. It's probably, an, it might be an exaggeration. But there might also be some fantastic elements that are mind-blowing and incredible that have been forgotten, like, <laughs> as well. Just because some things are exaggerated doesn't mean there aren't equally amazing things that just no one ever recorded. So... When we think about deities and gods, we have to realize what the different forms they might take and what ancient peoples would look on as, as godlike, right? Just something that's far beyond them would seem godlike, something that's just mega powerful and mysterious. You could ascribe godhood to, and that's why people ascribe godhood to, to forces of nature. Like you say, that this, every river has a god in it or every mountain has a god in it. That's um, not an uncommon way of looking at things in a lot of like animist Uh, traditions. So lots of cool possibilities and ideas there. 
if we mix in magic with these ancient beliefs, it really gives us a lot of fun and interesting possibilities that sets up magic within humanity that gets passed down generation upon generation and occasionally still lingers, which is why we have elements of that in the story now, like skin changing still happens, green seeing still happens, Valyrian bloodlines are a parallel example of this. We'll talk about a little of that more uh, later too. Little tidbit I found on westeros.org. I was browsing back on there again after and during uh, having Elio on. While we were had him on, you were browsing. Yeah, while he was talking, I was browsing. Yeah, no, <laughs> nope, not really. <laughs> not that, just kidding. I would give you kudos for being able to do that. I, it's too much for me to keep up with the document, <laughs> what I'm saying and what you're saying. And and uh, what gets abandoned is the, the chat. I look at it later, but I just, every time I look at the chat in the middle of the stream, you ask me a question, I'm like, wait, what were we talking about? <laughs> uh, I can't imagine browsing something also. <laughs> that's one of them. I mean, it's not one, there's a couple of reasons why, but one of the reasons why we had to have, or it made sense for Ashea to, to spend more time behind camera and doing all this work is that just what you're saying. There's so many things that go into a live yeah. stream and keeping track of live comments is one of them. We don't want to miss what y'all are saying, um, but it's hard not to in some cases because there's so many uh, people saying good things. So the comment that was submit, that I took note of here on westeros.org was from a commenter named Odie Dragon. Odie like Garfield's Odie, so that's a good name. A dragon. <laughs> can you picture that? A dragon that looks like Odie? It would be <laughs> drooling Garfield. a lot, I <laughs> yeah. think, right? A very <laughs> dumb, <laughs> drooling dragon. Dragon drool, yeah. <laughs> and happy. Yes. Blissfully happy. Very happy, you're right. Totally, unflappably happy. <laughs> you could not <laughs> upset this dragon. Odie the happy dragon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so George was on a panel at Worldcon 2004 about the subject of gods in fantasy. And according to Odie Dragon, George said, he said that in the real world, he doesn't see gods, but he does see religions and he creates religions, not gods, which is a very succinct way to put it. And it, it makes sense given with the way he's written it. Wouldn't you, uh, that, that does reflect in his writing, don't you think, Sean? I, I do, and I appreciate it. In fact, I think that um, on one hand, it it's causes trouble for us to interpret, right? What's going on? Like we know there are fantastic or mystical forces at play and we see some parallels between different cultures. <sighs> Uh, phenomenons and namings of them and and religions and and it it, it leads us to want to think that there's some central power or god behind it all that's just playing out differently in these different cultures or time periods but we don't really know and i think that ambiguity is what makes it more interesting and more worth researching and discussing and if you just came out and tried to tell us it's the midichlorians, you know, it'd be more frustrating. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's the midichlorians, <laughs> which is funny because that is a thing in the bloodline, right? Like, <laughs> which yeah. it wasn't necessary to do that, but that is, <laughs> like, it, it rel that's how it relates to what we're talking about because we're like, how did they get this magic in them in the first place? And yeah, it's not like they tried to explain how midichlorians came into existence in the first place, but yeah, it was it was bolted on rather than something that's kind of been there all along like it is here. This is This was set up at the beginning, so a little more. <laughs> it probably both gives George more liberty to write without pinning him down to the exact details of what some certain god did or whatever. And 
also is a more realistic way, I don't know, for him and us to perceive how the world works because we don't have, like even in our real world, which for all of history, most people have believed in some sort of God or another, even though there's not real solid substantive evidence for it, but we're still compelled for one reason or another to, to buy into it. And that would be the case in this world, whether the gods are real, who they are, which ones they are, whatever, there's still going to be religions popping up, trying to interpret them or, or what they perceive as being them. And so it makes sense for him to write it that way too. I agree. That's good said, Sean. Very, very good. Moving on, we're roughly at our halfway point here. As always, the halfway point sometimes doesn't turn out to be the halfway point because our episodes go where they go. We allow them to flow in directions that we don't always know they're going to go. We prepare a lot, but we also leave ourselves open to go in new directions that we didn't prepare for. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Even if you're one of those people who is good at coming up with gift ideas, you can never really have too many because if you're getting someone a gift, you're probably getting them a gift again in a few months or later in the year or maybe once a year. Very often, people you get gifts for, you get them for recurringly. Let me suggest a GiveHerGifts.com package. That's give, G-I-V-H-E-R, gifts.com. These gifts are different than the rest because it's an experience that you and your partner can do together. You can create a connection that way. A little more personal. Aaron, the owner, started GiveHerGifts.com recently. So it is a small business and a lot of people prefer to support small businesses and a lot of gifts maybe has a little bit of a vibe to it when it comes from a smaller independent spot. And see, here's the real reason to support them. See, if you support Give Her Gifts, you're also supporting us. <laughs> Double whammy here. <laughs> That's true, I suppose. <laughs> you're right. Uh, last week, I showed off the beeswax candle that comes in the in a lot of the GiveHerGifts.com packages. This week, I want to mention the Wild Roses body and massage oil. Also has an amazing smell to it. The beeswax candle made our studio. And I call it a studio. That's kind of a fancy word for it. It's not really a studio. It's our living room. <laughs> it's where we watch it's TV and work. Yeah. It's our office. Yeah. We don't really have a dedicated room for recording. <laughs> We're not fancy people. <laughs> but this uh, this Wild Roses body massage oil is a little bit fancy. Is it like Blue Roses? It might be Blue or it might be Golden Roses. Because I actually think of, whenever I think of Game of Thrones and, and Roses, I think of the Tyrells. So I think oh. of Golden Roses first. So we'll say that really? some of them you are Golden. Of them first, yeah. Yeah, some of them are red. We'll say there's a variety of rose colors here. Blue, red, golden. They all look great. Wild roses is these. I don't know. That's kind of crazy. Do they have <laughs> tame roses? <laughs> that's more uh, my thing. Yeah. Hmm. Tame but yeah, roses. It does smell good, though. I guess tame roses don't have thorns. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it does smell really, really good. I tried some on uh, my leg last night. And earlier in the week as well, because I have like some dry skin on on my uh, my calves, which I'm sure you really needed to know that. Yeah, I was just thinking but that. 
on my calves. That's not gross, right? <laughs> so, so I tried it out there, How and, and that's calves? when I got to. I'm sorry. How old are your calves? <laughs> the same age as the rest full of grown them. cows. Not yet. Full grown cows. Okay. Yeah. Cows. Isn't that weird? We walk around on uh, on baby cows all our lives. <laughs> they never get older, even as we do. Boy, this ad took took a strange turn. I will say to relate real quick is he's moving from Atlanta, the south, which is pretty humid, to Denver, which is pretty dry. I have dry skin out here. Really? Oh. Asthma. Yeah. Actually, personally, my own experience is similar there because when I used to go to Colorado every summer with my mom, because she played in a music festival there, it was like her summer job. And I would get nosebleeds when I was a kid. Oh. Yeah. It would just start just, just randomly. Oh, from the dry, the dry air. Yeah. With like dry I would just be walking down the street and all of a sudden psh, just starts. More that's even more TMI for y'all, but it's just yeah, like that. It's totally a thing. Your body has to acclimate to that. So here's another use for the uh, wild what, roses oil so what that code I code can people use. I'm sorry. So people can use a code. The code is Westeros. We try to keep our codes consistent. Sometimes it's history. Sometimes it's Westeros. But this one is Westeros. Ten percent off. Give her gifts. G I V H E R gifts dot com. Check them out. Get yourself some of this, or rather, get your partner some of this. I my favorite thing time. that came in it was a was a pebble. By the way, what's that? My favorite thing that came in the box was a pebble. Yeah, there's a, a pebble that comes pebble. in the box. Tell you tell know, them about that. Because of the penguin and the pebble, penguins they look for the perfect pebble for their their loved one. It's kind of like an engagement yeah. ring, but yeah, they, they'll search out a a, a, a a perfect rock and give it to, to their their partner. It's um very sweet. There's an animated kids movie about it called The Pebble and the Penguin. Um, that I, I liked a lot. And so I appreciate it. It's a little box and it just says like... You know, yeah, that, so you, you get a penguin one. gift as well in your givehergifts.com package. So that's yeah. pretty And cool. the code is Westeros, not dry cab. <laughs> <laughs> or, or nosebleed. Yeah, it's Westeros. <laughs> question from Dornish Dame. Really loving this new VRR section. That's the end. No, it's not a question. Just kidding. <laughs> Looking into world building, George's inspirations for the series and the accuracy of the information Yandel is presenting. A couple of quick thoughts. Very interested in the idea of what cutting down a werewood does in terms of loss of knowledge. How would the dead werewood tree at Raven Tree Hall fit into this? Is the knowledge still preserved there or has the Bracken curse removed it? Also, regarding Arya and John's increased warging slash wolf dreams, although they have them in the first three books, I feel they really take off after Arya witnesses the aftermath of the Red Wedding and John loses Egret. Could a traumatic incident push them into it the same way illness appears, appears to do with green tier characters? All right, let's parse that in half. That is two pretty distinct questions. Let's talk about the tree and the, the holding on of memories. Great question, by the way. Does a fossilized, sort of dead or petrified tree, is that the same as being dead or same as cutting it down? My instinct is to guess, yes, a dead tree is a dead tree. It doesn't matter what kind of dead it is. Yeah. But... Um, I agree. Shay agrees. What do you do think, you agree, Sean? Sean? Do you concur? No, no, I'm torn. I, I, I will say that this uh, mycelial network that I've learned about recently does make me think a little bit differently about it. You know, oftentimes, hmm. tree stumps, like a tree that's been cut down, and you still see the tree stump, it's still alive. That's it true. lives a long, like years and years and years. The, the 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 network system, the fungus and the roots and the microbes under the soil keep sending it nutrients and keep it alive. Mm. So I guess maybe, you know, if the tree is dead, maybe not. But it, if it's how sure are you that it's dead? Good, okay, you know? so that's a really good way to, to delineate the difference there. Yeah, and this is a wonderful example, Sean. Recall, if you will, Jamie's famous... Werewood stump dream. 
that he has his biggest multi-page long dream with Brienne and down below Cashley Rock and the Rhaegar and the Knights of the Tower of Joy. That is, he's got his head on a weirwood stump. So, boom, you, you connected some dots there. I like that idea a lot. And you're right that just because it appears dead, it may not be. But truly, dead, I think you're right. That's a pretty good way to put it. I think if it's truly dead, then then it's truly dead. And, you know, there's no other trees. Even then, I'm a little suspicious. <laughs> like, I wonder if maybe it's like if you took out the books out of a library. Mm. I, you know, maybe the knowledge isn't there, but it's still the, the potential is there. I don't know if that's mm. the best way to describe it, but. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, let's talk I about mean, the second. A library without its books is just a room. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's, yeah. If it doesn't have But books, you could fill it back up. Right, if the okay. right person started to take care of I mean, it I could again, fill it back up could... with fish, and it would be an aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> be a weird aquarium, but I guess you're right. <laughs> uh, so the second half of the question regarding the trauma as a way to mimic the idea that, like Brand's injury, potentially helped open him up to receiving the signals that helped bring him on the path to green seardom. Arya and John both have powerful wolf dreams. I've consistently argued that Arya's are even stronger than John's, uh, and especially because she's gone into other animals besides ghosts, and John hasn't done that. So, but this is a really interesting point about connecting these traumatic incidents. The death of, of her mother uh, and seeing the Red Wedding, Dornstein points out that Arya's uh, most intense wolf dreams come right after that. And that's an interesting realization because as I'm still working on this Brandon the Builder episode, and there's a section in there about right after the Red Wedding because Arya and Sandor go and build a wall in a small village. And it's a it's an interesting little parallel to the building of the wall by giants because Sandor is then kicked out after he builds the wall, which is kind of like what happened to the giants. They, oh, yeah. Right? Isn't that neat? But so I don't want to get lost in that. <laughs> I don't want to start talking about that. That's a whole nother thing. But it's really neat. So there's a little teaser for you. But in that chapter, Arya has two wolf dreams. Not one, not, you know, not none, because a lot of her chapters she has none, but she has two. And that's when she realizes her mother is truly dead because she's she, one of those wolf dreams is, is going into Nymeria when Nymeria finds her mother's corpse and pulls it out of the water and leaves it there when Thoros and other people show up. So that's really damn traumatic, I would think. Uh, she went to the Red Wedding, was about to re be reunited with her family. Instead, everyone dies. She runs away. Then she has a very realistic dream about it. And then she has another dream similar to that, not without the trauma, just another regular wolf dream. And John, like, I didn't notice that that was so close to him losing a grit um, when he has his first wolf dream, but that's a really good catch. Is there any... Uh... I don't know, parallel to draw a blood raven? Like, did he have some increase after he lost his eye? Or I think that's what a lot of people would think. We have speculated yeah. on that, yeah. And it does seem entirely possible. Maybe just, uh, and going north, going to the wall, maybe, I don't know if that would be the same kind of trauma, but it would be such a big change and open up new, maybe avenues of thought, maybe prick new areas in his brain. But yeah, that's really interesting. Just big major events in your life um, whether they're injuries or traumatic, you know, traumatic emotionally or physically or both could, yeah. Um, in the, in the way that perhaps George is tying into the real human experience that comes when you lose one of your senses and thus you get stronger 
with your other senses because you rely on them more. I think we've all, oh, we've I, all heard of that concept, I'm pretty sure. Jojen's an example too, because Jojen says that he, his green dreams basically started after he had a bout of gray water fever. Uh, uh, and that's why, and, and when he told his father he was having these dreams, that's when his father's like, well, you need to go to Bran. You need to go to Winterfell. <laughs> He's like, you're having these <laughs> dreams. Get ye to... <laughs> get ye to Winterfell, son. Daughter, you go with him because he needs he needs help and you're good at that. So yeah, it's really cool. It's really, really fascinating. Um I'm really looking forward to learning more about all this. It is remarkably consistent while remaining vague. Uh, which is that's a hard thing to do, right? That's a tightrope walk, George. <laughs> the other trick is getting us so interested that we notice all that. <laughs> which uh yeah, he's also yeah. done quite well, <laughs> right? The Pact. That is the title of this episode. After all, we've done some building up to it. Well, let's have a quote. The wisest of both races prevailed. The chief heroes and rulers of both sides met upon the isle in a god's eye to form the pact. Giving up all the lands of Westeros save for the deep forest, the children won from the first men the promise that they would no longer cut down their werewoods. All the werewoods of the isle and the pact on which the pact was forged, were then carved with faces so that the gods could witness the pact. And the order of the green men was made afterwards to tend to the werewoods and protect the isle. We'll talk about the order of the green men a little bit separately, but we'll start with the pact itself and work through all these different elements because this whole thing is fascinating. And it's one of the things that George has really, really kind of avoided. <laughs> you know, like he's, he introduced it mm -hmm. and then he's, overtly and deliberately kept it as vague as possible. It's almost, it's, it's almost screaming like I'm saving this for later. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to explain this now. This is for later. I'm keeping it secret for now. Cause it is so, so much about it is odd, right? Sean, like how, given all we just said about the disparity and widespread nature of first men culture and the size of Westeros, how did people come together on a thing like this? Like, how is the communicate? Like, we're, you can't have sent out letters, like everyone from every village, be aware. Yeah. It's just hard to imagine something like this being like organized, right? The logistics of this event by itself are wild. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just potentially maybe... It's hard to explain how it happened or not quite as many people were involved as is stated here or lots of different possibilities. Um, what's your first impression of, of the yeah. pact? And we'll get into the, they'll get more detailed on it as we go forward. One thought uh, of why George might keep it at bay is because it might include a lot of supernatural stuff that he doesn't want to get into. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yes. Things he hasn't decided on or might like open the door to all kinds of things that go down roads he doesn't want to or open up speculation that he doesn't want to to be led to or to be part of it or whatever. And But he doesn't necessarily want to shut it all down either. So I can see a lot of reasons why it might be like a story he hasn't fully fleshed out in his mind or a story that starts up too many new different stories or maybe isn't totally necessary to the central plot and characters that we're following. And He wants other things but to happen first. But that doesn't make first. not really yeah. want to know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> A, a couple thoughts I have about it. Again, there's so many parallels here to to Europeans coming across to natives in America and how those interactions would have gone down. And there's a couple, I think, particularly noteworthy examples to draw conclusions from here, I guess. I don't know how to say it. But one is that um, the first official treaty between the U.S. and natives was in 1778 
which was while the U.S. was still in the middle of the Revolutionary War against England. Mm. And it was, it's got kind of two names. It's called the Treaty of the Delawares. We were just calling them the, quote unquote, the Delaware Indians, just the native tribes that lived in the area of the Delaware River. But at that point, they'd already been kind of pushed into uh, Pennsylvania and they were being pushed farther, farther west. Because already these same people had other treaties, quote unquote, that had been made before the revolution had come about, you know, and like William Penn had made a pact with the Iroquois and several other tribes. Again, you got to remember, just like the children, they weren't just quote unquote Indians. There's all sorts of different tribes tribes. of factions within. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he had made, and a lot of these early treaties seemed to be pretty genuinely trying to figure out how to, how to cooperate, how, how to share this land and the resources and respect what they wanted, that the natives understood that these people coming across, they had like metal tools and they're like families and kids. They weren't like evil monsters or anything. You know, everyone was on some level, there was some genuine understanding and intent to cooperate. But a lot of times it eventually degenerates into as more and more Europeans come across, more and more the natives have been decimated by disease, more and more their lands being encroached on, they have less and less relative power and uh, William Penn's children just swindled them out of their land, you know, but, and, and that was all background to this treaty that happened in 1778 that lasted about a year after about a year. The basic idea was both the, the Americans and these, this native tribe, the Lapani, I think, um, were trying to cooperate with each other in the midst of this war. And the the Americans was like, hey, we want to be able to move our armed forces through your land to fight the British. We're not coming after you. And we'll even build fortresses for you to defend against the British in the midst of this. Like, yeah, sounds good. But like a year later, they were like, you guys are not holding up here in the bargain. Mm. Uh, You've already taken a bunch of our land that was promised to us years ago. And they tried to appeal to the Congress and the Congress just didn't want it and said, it, it fell apart and they joined the British and attacked us, you know. Oh, gosh. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so you one, well, let, let me get to another story real quick. The Wampanoag in 1621. So this is, you know, way over 150 years or whatever earlier, much earlier, much earlier yeah. in the sort of uh, colonization of the Americas. But even at that point, there'd already been 100 years of Europeans coming across and raiding and attacking and kidnapping. And uh, and so there was one guy and this tribe that had actually been uh, like a, a ship landed, offered to, to make trade with the people. And some members of the tribe got onto the ship to like look at what they had. And then they just seized them and drove, sailed back to Europe and sold them as slaves. Eesh. Then Spanish monks were like, hey, we, we have, actually have a law. You're not supposed to enslave. At that point, the Spanish religious leaders were starting to overcome the sway of the Spanish military leaders and say, we shouldn't be attacking these people. We should be converting them to Christianity. Ah. And so these monks got this one particular uh, tribesman released. And he found passage back on another ship trying to get back home. This is like wow. a years long. He got back to the Americas? Yes. Wow. He had learned English and he was on a ship as an interpreter for this trader who legitimately wasn't like a pirate. He wanted to go trade with the native tribes and this guy was going to be able to facilitate that. But when he got there, the... The tribes and warned him. He's like, now look, a lot of Europeans come across and attack and they're not going to know or care who's who's. Be careful when you approach mm. them. They're not just going to assume you're a benevolent traitor. He didn't listen. He charged in. He gets attacked. He ended up dying of his wounds on his way back. This tribesman gets back to his own tribe. 
and as an English speaker, is now a very valuable resource to the tribe. This tribe, mm. who is at war with another faction within the tribe, a set of pilgrims come to settle, as opposed to like traders or explorers, where they've come to set an establishment. And so the two, the leaders of these of this pilgrimage and this tribe meet with each other, and they decide, let's be friends. You know, the, the native leader among his people, they're very suspicious, but he's like, look, we don't want another enemy. These people might even be able to help us against our enemies. And they're starving. They're barely going to make it to the winter. Mm. We can help them out. This seems like a good thing. So they've made a pact. And part of the agreement was if any of either side was aggressive toward the other, yeah. they'd be turned over to the other side for judgment and punishment. This lasted 50 years, mm. 50 years of peace. And also, by the way, this is the story of Thanksgiving. This is the, <laughs> oh, that story we hear about the pilgrims nice. and the Indians. Making, this is that group, that moment that it oh, happened. Okay. But the thing about all this that I really want to pull out is how complicated and long-term these things were. And relatively small scale, even though it involved many factions over many generations, it was still just one little town. You know what yeah. I mean? There's no way anyone down in Florida knew that any of this was happening. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Maybe at this point, when the pact happens, in fact, let me ask, how long after the first men first came across the pact, approximately, do we know? Was it like 200 years, 4,000 years? No, we don't. Maybe 4,000 years. It's really, yeah. it's all just estimates. It really isn't known. Sure. But it's, yeah, it's, more likely to be in the thousands than yeah. the hundreds. <laughs> it's something It's it's something like ten to 12,000 years ago that it happened. Yeah. Because the long night would have been about 4,000 years later, uh, as far as so, we know. That's one, that's one of the more popular estimates anyway. So these happenings between the natives and the Americans were happening over a matter of a few hundred years. So maybe if the first men and the children had a thousand years, maybe there would have been more time to develop structures and communities yeah. and channels of communication. But even still, it man, like more it, time gotta, for things to fall apart. Yes, yes. more in different first. internal but conflicts to happen, here, more new first men to come across. The thing here is that you, what you don't have in those other packs, in these real world history packs, is that the, the children live long times. So yeah, right? you Isn't have one party that has a memory of, of what's, going, what's going on. Yeah. Um, there's just a certain longevity to it that um, it does make a difference. Even if the first men don't have it, a child who can be like, Yo, I I knew your your great grandparents, and I can tell you this about them. That has oh, a certain wow. Uh, that's a really significance. Oh, I love that idea, yeah. Shay. That's a really cool idea. Like that you have children that could visit human settlements and say, "Yeah, I knew your great 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 grandfather." Yeah, yeah. that's you know, really cool. The most realistic one to to tell them that they could actually convince them of something. But yeah, yeah like if you actually knew their grandparents and they knew their grandparents, you could bond over something. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that's probably where a lot of the, that's the a great connection point. came from. Now, not to mention, of course, the the religious connection that eventually forms. That's pr probably the biggest thing of all is the children, the the old gods become come to be worshipped by the first men and they end up sharing a religion. That's huge, right? Like that's a gigantic point of connection when you worship the same gods. That's, uh, of course, obviously people that share a religion fight all the time. But I also, we wonder like what, uh, you know, they might worship the same gods, but have very different conceptions of what the meaning of those gods are. That's like true. Again, if we're talking about the children being aware that the green seers, that the old gods are their green seers, are children of the forest and that connection, whereas the first men might be worshiping them, have no idea that it's children. Yeah, that's true. Just a couple more points, just thinking about the 
potential parallels with the examples that I gave. Yeah. And you can imagine how many other examples there would be along those Got lines. Got so many, yeah. <laughs> one thing that happens is time passes, there would be more infrastructure. There would be more roads built and established communities that would communicate with each other, liaisons and trade and political leaders and such. So, you know, like when, when you, you know, more official United States makes a treaty in 1778 with the native tribe, that is going to be like on the books and disseminated among different leaders and better known than something that happened 150 years ago between just two people next to each other communicating. It's not... Yeah, once the, once the trade the and communication networks are established, yeah. then they're more, so, yeah. But also, ironically, as you get deeper into time, the treaties were less respected and less lasted less long, uh-huh. you know, as the, the, the balance of power had shifted... Um, as there were more different motivations involved and stuff like that. So I, I can also imagine maybe things like that happen with the the pact. Like by the time they got to the pact, there might have been more, you know, it would have included, it almost specifically included leaders from different areas. And then mm. maybe they over time had, it might have taken a whole generation to organize the pact. Or it yep. might, the pact might also be the culmination of a series of treaties and meetings and agreements mm. that maybe a lot of groups had already yeah. had a pact amongst themselves and eventually they all got, or... This was the super pact. Probably not even yeah. all, but all the central ones and all the connected ones, you know, got on the same page. That's a good but, um, I like that thought a lot. Yeah. As far as in world, as far as in the story itself, we've, we've all talked, we've all heard of the pact plenty of times. We've talked about it a few times. It's mentioned in the history books, obviously, but in the five books, in the five main books, it's mentioned once. And that's it. Mm. <laughs> and uh, w- the one time, that's it. The, the brand chapter, brand seven, his last chapter in the first book, brand seven, Game of Thrones, when Lewin is giving a history lesson to the kids, which by proxy, us as readers, by the way, as an aside, as difficult as writing children POV sounds. And George has even said that himself, like multiple was like, I really, yeah, it's really hard to do kid POVs. You can't deny the narrative power of adult explain something to a child or a group of children. And uh, <laughs> as, as a way to explain things to an audience and in like a authentic manner. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's and it's something impressive. that's easy to overdo. Also, I think George does a good job of these moments where he uses a character telling a story to fill us in on background or details Without it seeming too contrived. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you do that a lot, then that's, that's your. If yeah, every time two characters meet, they're like, hello, Jamie, my brother. Oh, hi, Cersei, my sister. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of our father, Tywin? You know, like, a lot of times TV no dialogue like trying to that. keep people abreast of past episodes can be very unrealistic dialogue. Yeah. But, but a teacher talks to the children makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's the same scene where Rickon wants for. Uh, arrowheads because <laughs> he's four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that the pact is brought up here in this brand chapter that that's the one because, I mean, we obviously think that's the POV we'll be in when we see the pact and we find out more information about it. Yeah, like he's, he's perhaps our only way. He's the only way we could actually, like, we could actually see a glimpse of it happening through, you know, green sight. Um, through him looking in the trees, like we could actually see it. We can actually hear more about it through the children, through him. And we can actually see some sort of similarity, you know, in his plot going forward in terms of trying to find some peaceful resolution. That is a perfect thing to have said there, Shea. Well point. Because I wanted to use that as a springboard to talk about exactly about that, which is that 
Bran is an example, perhaps, of how the information could have been spread. If you have a leader of first men or a being, a first men character who has taken on or imbued with the powers of the first of the old gods, like a green seer, an early green seer first man, that person would have a lot of sway uh, in first man communities and could potentially communicate in ways that are not, we don't necessarily uh, know were available to them. You reminded me of something else that a character, certain characters might only not only carry more sway or maybe, you know, cause and effect might have better insight. Mm. Kind of like Ashea was saying earlier about children who have lived longer over time, they might be better able to relate to the first men mm. and have a better negotiating. Same thing that native who had been captured, taken prisoner, brought to Europe, then released and come back. He would have been a witness to so many more. To him, a European ship showing up isn't as homogenous as it would be to the other natives on shore. Right. right. Like, seen three ships, ship. all of them yeah. came yeah. and attacked sure. him. Right. This guy went over there and got released. These Europeans are like, hey, he should be free. You know, he would know that there's a difference between the people and the culture. So when he goes back to his tribe, they can gain a new perspective from him. So you could see a lot of that might happen with the forming of the pact, all sorts of the to how the different leaders and negotiators and children with greater memories mm. and insights over time, they would have been more motivated in understanding of each other and to form a peace. But then again, similar to as time progresses, you get more Europeans came across that didn't know or care about these packs. Vandals didn't know or care. They just yeah, uh, that's pack, that's nice. We're chopping these trees down. <laughs> you know, part of that. So that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. Adding on more to, to Bran, if we look to perhaps a new agreement. Um, if the others were, let's say the others were part of because of a, viol- a later violation of the pact. It wouldn't have been the first men that violated it. Potentially, maybe it was because of the Andals. That's not necessarily even the reason the long night happened. But if it is, if the others are, as has been suspected, a creation of the children as a way to fight against humanity, an agreement not to do that again, or you know, on both sides would, necess- would, be, would be perhaps needed. And it might be someone like Bran, the sort of linchpin between two cultures that yeah. establishes that. Someone who is both powerful and has noble blood, which, let's be honest, in Westeros, that counts for a lot. So people maybe are more likely to listen to him on that because of that. Uh, so with, with the, all these different attributes he has, he becomes someone that has uh, authority Clarity, extra knowledge, power, all these things that gives him, yeah, people would listen to that. Understanding, yeah. insight, yeah, empathy. Yeah. This whole straddling two cultures thing is a really interesting device. Too. We talked about how children are an interesting place within stories because of their use as a tool to explain things to the audience. The same thing is, is expressed by having someone who is in part of two cultures. One of our favorite uh, other fandoms, other stories that one that George himself loves to praise is The Last Kingdom. The main character, Uhtred, is born a, uh, is a Saxon by birth, but taken by Danes and raised as a Dane. So he has, uh, and then later unites, reunites with his Saxon roots. So he's got that double identity also. And that, that makes for great storytelling, as well as interesting things in the real world too, depending on what culture and time frame you're looking at yeah it's interesting not only because do they have this insight of both different cultures and so they can be a key player in a lot of things going on around them but also it gives them this 
personal, this inner conflict of what their identity is. You know, it's, yeah. it is a really good uh, storytelling centerpiece. Now, certain things we can sort of date. We can say it, this had to have happened first. In other words, before the pact. For example, basic communication. We know that at some point, the children and the first men learned to communicate. Eventually, figures like, again, Bran, Brandon the Builder, learned how to speak the language of the children, which is kind of what's happening to current Bran. So that's really neat. Bran, you know, the, the history repeating itself sort of situation here. Bran, his, a lot of parallels from him and other characters, but perhaps the best parallel is Bran the Builder. With that in mind... Yeah, he's the linchpin. He's the connection point. He's the way they can talk. So they had to have, that had to happen first. Some people had to learn how to communicate with the children. At least one person had to learn how to talk to the children <laughs> before anything like this could happen. And I suspect it had to probably went a lot farther than that. And there had to be something that stopped them, right? The children were losing. When you're losing, it's kind of hard to get people to the negotiating table without some kind of leverage. Because if you're just losing and looks like you're going to lose, the other side might just be like, well, why should we negotiate? Why don't we just continue to wipe you out? Why don't we just do that? So there had to be some reason where the children could either say, look, we can still harm, do great harm to you. So peace is in your, great, is, is in your best interests. And there's a lot of reason, things that could fall into that category of things that kept the first men from killing all the children? What stayed their hand? What kept them from committing genocide? Uh, or what interrupted that genocide or delayed it until the Andals came? Which, that sounds harsh, but that is pretty much what people do. They, if it threatens them, they kill it. Like, there's a lot of species in the real world that are extinct because they threatened humanity. Um, some are extinct not because they threaten humanity. They're just extinct for other reasons, because we like how they taste or whatever. But the, the point stands. That, is, tend to be, that tends to be the basic reaction. And when we come back to, say, the broken arm, a broken arm of Dorne, or this notion that there were lots of people sacrificed in these high magic rituals, well, that's exactly the kind of thing that might say that they could use as leverage. Think of um, the, doom, like the doomsday device scenario, where you say, okay, we can't beat you, but if you keep attacking us, we're going to blow up everything. We're going to kill everybody, but you and us, right? Like, and that's, that's kind of the Doctor Strange love is what's going on in that movie there. It's the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. it's the Cold War. Like, if you nuke us, we nuke you, then everyone's dead. Perfect example, Sean. Cold War is a perfect example. So if the children have something like, oh, I don't know, permanent winter <laughs> as a threat to drop on everyone, something like that, maybe... Or another broken arm of Dorne, like, look what we can do. Well, it, it took us a lot of effort to do that, to sink a landmass. But we'll do it again if y'all don't chill on the slaughtering of us and chopping down our trees. Combine that with the notion of the children, of, of the first men adopting their worship and all things like that with, oh, we want access to power like that. I don't know. But you can see there, we can't pinpoint it, but there's a lot of compelling reasons as to why the first men would be like, whoa, okay. Yeah, this is just mutual destruction here, even though we're winning. I could see also it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a mutual destruction scenario either. It could just simply be, again, very similar to how Europeans coming into the Americas. We theoretically might be able to just go attack them and win, but people still die in the meantime. 
the people are taken away from their farms and their families to do it. And as you get more established cities, you know, communities or whatever that have been there longer, have more defenses or whatever, but people keep coming and spreading farther out. And on the outskirts, that's where they're going to face more danger. Every time someone goes out to build a new house or chop down wood, wood they get ambushed by the children. <sighs> we got, man, you know, this is too much. Yeah. We got to, we got to say. And on top of that, you add the potential of trade, the benefits mm-hmm. of a yeah. uh, shared relationship. So, That's true. And when you keep in mind, too, that this seems to have taken hundreds, if not thousands of years, that there's got to be this sort of attrition. There's got to be this realization over time by the wisest of the communities that, like, we'd be better off making a deal with them so they don't attack us and kill us. Like, even if we theoretically could win in a war, we don't want to go to war. We just want to farm. Yeah, you know, that yeah. was kind of a central story to to Vikings. Uh, you know, the that they didn't necessarily want to conquer. Europe or England or whatever, they just needed more farmland. There just wasn't enough land for their people and food and resources in those super cold northern areas. So they go south just because they want a better life. And like, crap, there's already people here. So we don't necessarily want to kill all these people. We just want to be able to farm in this land safely. And so it's better to be able to negotiate some compromise than to constantly be at war with each other. So even if one side theoretically could when it still takes generations and generations for that to play out. And a lot of people die and suffer in those generations. Can't we come up with something better? It makes sense to me that you don't necessarily need some doomsday moment. But we did even talk in the past about how the children might be like taking over their animals. Yeah. Yeah. Nina reminds us of that. Like if you really wanted to get, if it got really bad, if it got really vicious, the children could target human children like we're gonna go after them in dreams we're gonna send our animals specifically after them that's who we're we're gonna focus on your kids because you're killing us you know that we're gonna the escalation of violence might lead to hitting them where it hurts the most especially if their idea is to stop them from turning into adults that i mean it's sort of somewhat pragmatic too it's like well i don't want that person to grow into a full-grown adult that will be more capable of killing us yeah, it might get real bad. Nina reminds us of, of yes, the supernatural advantage is clearly on the children's side, even though the, the numerical and technological advantage is clearly on the human side. But this the supernatural advantage could be exploited in some really vicious, nasty ways if necessary or if they thought it would help or if they just went that way out of pain and suffering and trauma and just uh, vindictiveness. That's the cycle of war for you, right? Yes. So we should maybe ask this question. The pact, you you floated this as a possibility. Maybe the pact wasn't a single event. Maybe it was a gradual series of agreements that coalesced into an understanding across the two societies or the two species. Because that would at least explain better how such a thing could have happened. A gathering like that is, you know, it's not impossible, but it is a little hard to, it's a little hard to figure. You know, that was a, a moment I appreciated in the movie Dune, uh, the newer version, uh, when uh, that that envoy came to meet the new president. And it was made clear leading up to that, that this is a ceremony. We've already made this deal. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that's, that's likely, you know, same thing. So th- there are these key moments in history we look at, the, the, the official marking of the, you know, I don't know, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But they just like show up and talk about it and sign it that afternoon. Yeah, there have been correspondence <laughs> and you know, discussions for a long time that led up to that. And so even if the pact was an actual specific moment, 
probably it was still the culmination of a bunch of moments of communications. That's a good point too. Like you think about, for example, how a lot of things are voted on in government, not just the US, obviously. The US is, obviously comes to mind for me first because that's where I live, but all over, lots of governments have votes on things where the vote is pretty much known ahead of time. Like everybody knows what everybody's going to vote. And there might be a few like surprises, but pretty much, I mean, you see that, especially in the U.S. Senate all the time, it's like, well, you have 50 of this and 50 of this. You can pretty much know. And like, well, when, and when one person's not going to vote with their 50 or the other side, it's a big deal. <laughs> you know? News, yeah. It's yeah. In, currently, it's a huge deal. So that's a good example of what you're saying. And, and it applies in a lot of ways. You're right. Like the deal is made before the deal is announced. It's not just done on the fly there. And that's entirely possible that a lot of different communities reached out to each other and made these agreements and went around. And it, it could have been the work of a lot of messengers and, and sub kings and chieftains and all that. And, and there'd probably be some and that just wouldn't, that refused to agree to it, but they, we might not hear of them. Right. Yeah. They might end up, all right, you're not part of the peace. We're attacking you. Yeah, you know? like, exactly. The giants notably were not part of the pact that, uh, that's specifically hmm. stated. And that's really interesting because, well, they didn't have the leverage the children had. There's no supernatural advantage there. Uh, they don't necessarily worship the same way. The giants worshiping the old gods, they do that. I mean, we see, we meet one one in a grove of, in the grove of nine. So he's there to worship. So I think it is about the leverage. And also they're not connected. The children and the giants aren't friendly with each other in general. So yeah. <laughs> they may be allies of circumstance when the first men are coming for them both, but it is interesting to note that they weren't included um, despite their ability to, you know, they have language, they can speak, they can talk, they have burials. So we taught, we noted their intelligence, but yet they were not included. One of the most important things that either came before as part of, or because of the pact, maybe this kicked it off more was the, ch the human societies adopting the old gods for themselves. And it's not just the worship, but the acquiring of the actual powers, which is a really interesting thing, right? Uh, and again, the why is something that we touched on earlier in this episode. It's not hard to see why they would eventually gravitate towards the real, actual power that the first men could clearly see exists with the children. Like, they're skin changing. They're maybe breaking arms of Dorn and stuff. That's that's real. That's provable. That's not just a matter of dogma or or belief or faith. It's it's provable. So that would win some people over and be like, I want to do that, you know. <laughs> but how? How did they how did they do that? And they would notice that their own gods probably, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is where some of the Age of Heroes powers come from. Maybe this is, this, we'll go why El and I, and maybe some of these old gods really did. Other old gods had powers that were put into humanity. But even if that was the case, not all humanity would have access to that. Not everyone can breed with an, a god. <laughs> you know, not everyone has an El and I to take to wife. So what about the rest of us? That's what the children are for, I guess. Best of us. Yeah. It also wouldn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense for the first men to agree to not kill werewolves if they had already begun adopting them and worshiping them, right? If they were already worshiping the first, worshiping the old gods, worshiping the werewolves, then why do you need the pact? Because that's what the pact was about. Don't do that. It was a big part of that. So I kind of suspect that the pact also represents this 2001 monolith moment when they started 
maybe being taught when the children said, okay, it wasn't just, you don't just agree not to cut down the trees. It's also, we teach you some of this magic. And that would give, that would explain some of that leverage. That would explain why, it would help explain potentially why the, that agreement was reached when one side was winning for so long. And we're like, well, we're also going to teach you this. So you'll never find this out on your own. You'll never learn our powers unless we teach them to you. So if we teach them to you, will you stop cutting down the trees? That's part of it. Stop killing us. Maybe that's a deal. That's a pretty uh, strong offer, right? <laughs> we'll teach you supernatural yeah. powers like that. I could really see that. And in order to do that, they'd have to worship the same way. They'd have to do the same things. I don't know. That works pretty well for me as, a, as an idea. Obviously, we can't call that a definitive, but yeah. It's also maybe a little easier for the children at the point when so many of the trees have been cut down in certain lands for them to say, okay, you guys get these lands, but leave us these lands. Mm. It's less of a concession for them to make. Yeah. I could see that being another like, that's true. Piece of why the bargaining moment is coming, you know? Yeah. Like the children didn't even want some of those lands. It's like, you take the desert. We're like, yeah, we didn't want that anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You take the, the, yeah, you take the jungle. The coastlines yeah. where you already chopped down all the weirwood trees. Like, we'll stop harassing you in these places. Yeah. If you don't come into our last bastion. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty reasonable. I mean, you also, we'll teach you our magic. Also, you kind of already get our gods now, right? Mm. You know, like you can see all sorts of uh, different pieces coming together. And, and, and it may be some of the first men that were more in the borders of those forests. They're not so sure about this. Yeah. Like, well, we have easy for you guys in Dorne to promise not down and not chop down to werewood trees, but we need firewood. And what are we going <laughs> to do? And the children are like, okay, I tell you chop what. Down the other we'll trees. You how, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just not these ones. They're, look, they're really easy to spot. It's the white ones with the red leaves. Just don't <laughs> cut those ones. All the other ones, especially if it has a face, really just don't cut that down. Nina says it's also a neat way of keeping both sides honest. You're probably a lot less likely to backstab your ally if you worship the same gods and follow the same you know, prohibitions and, and religious mores and believe that you're going to be judged in some sort of afterlife or killing the killing one is super taboo. This isn't... Uh, so it's not just politically and practically beneficial, it's a duty. It's a religious duty. So it gives them a lot of, it puts a lot of reasons in there for humans to behave a certain way. But there's other interesting questions like early first man traditions that were said to be seminal and super important and ones that still linger now, like kinslaying and guest right. That gives me a lot of curiosity because uh, I don't know, would that come from the children? Like, Kinslaying? Did the children care about that? I don't know. Maybe. Gastrite's real hard for me to figure because what are you like? No, I'm not going to kill you in my cave. You, If I invite you into my cave, you can't. Like, they didn't really, I don't know if they really had like homes in the same sense that humans do. So, like this whole bread and salt ritual, obviously the children didn't have bread, but that's a minor detail. They could have just accomplished it with some other means. Uh, some other symbolic method of establishing that guest right is, has been established or, or settled or is in play. So, yeah, isn't that odd? Uh, Kinsling and guest right are kind of like, hmm, what's, where does that come from? Is that just a humanity kind of adding their own spin on, on this? Or does that actually originate from the children of the forest themselves? I, I'm curious about that. I tend to think they're right. former. What do you think? I think Kinsling, I can imagine just like come... It's not like other cultures. Like, sure, kill your brother. It's pretty common. Like, maybe it's <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe it's 
delineated better or has an extra taboo in Westeros, but it's a generally a, a, a human belief or, you know, a common, typical kind of thing. And sort of guessed right too. But my thought is that guessed right might have come from the interactions with the children. They yeah, like, look, maybe. if we need to negotiate with them, oh, we have to trust them yeah. and they have to trust us to have this meeting. Good idea. You know? Very good idea. So, yeah. Hmm. That the gold gods have blessed this meeting and they're watching over it if either side betrays the other. Yeah, it's like an agreement to, it's like a white flag, a truce flag. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's a great idea. I like that idea a lot. That, that that could really fit. Like, yeah, how else could they trust each other unless you have some sort of, mm, yeah, there would be a lot of distrust between a lot of these societies, especially trying to yeah. bring together the, the ones who are most angry with the other side. So that's a cool thought. That's very cool. Let's talk more specifically. We've been we've been back and forth on this, uh, in and out on the concept of how they got this idea. Well, one concept, one possibility comes to us through the way power is achieved now, um, the way alliances are established now amongst human societies, and I mean now in the story, not now in the real world. It's usually marriages. It's a way to seal power. It's a way to connect families. It's a way to build bonds. It's a way to mix bloodlines and thus your family becomes their family. That gets a little trickier here with different species, but it's not out of the question. And I want to as well point out just how this whole quest for power is so seminal and so central to A Song of Ice and Fire as a whole, like how humans deal with power and the lust for power and the exercise of power when presented with the option or the chance to imbue the species with supernatural powers learned from another species has got to have set some people to uh, drooling <laughs> like ah, uh, the power, you know, like if you want to reach, if you want to become king and rule over other people, imagine the temptation of magic, of being able to invade people's brains or take over animals and like what Varamir does. He, he just terrorizes people in ruled villages because he could send his shadow cat and send his bear and people would were terrified of him. I mean, think about that. Just plenty of people who are maybe terrible people or not terrible, just decent people corrupted or taken in by this idea, seduced by this idea of having more power. It's like the dark side, you know, <laughs> like come to the dark side. We can control other people and tell them what to do. And Sometimes that can be sold as a way to protect yourselves. Like the only way you can ever feel safe is, is by, you know, killing your enemies. And the only way you can ever do that is by having the powers they have and more, you know. You remind me of one of the Star Wars Visions episodes. Mm. I'm not going to remember the, the exact quotes, but, you know, the, the context was, you know, there's a Jedi and his mentor-mentee relationship. And the Jedi is basically... uh you know, commenting on the idea of, you know, the evil associated with power and, and the, the younger Jedi is like, well, are you saying there's no value to power? And he's like, oh, there's definitely value to power. You can use power to protect the weak. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times the path to evil is paved with good intentions. Power isn't necessarily evil. A lot of times, once you have it, it's easy to abuse it. But usually people that want it, at least ostensibly in the beginning, want it to, you know, protect their family, to protect their people, to or, or enhance their family or their people or whatever. But it is someone who is does not have good intentions in the first place 
would love to get some power. It's <laughs> yeah. so much easier <laughs> they, to do bad things with it. And they would have less qualms about it, right? The Eve, the worst person, yeah. like someone, like a decent person would often question the amount of power they wield over other people. Like that creates in, imbalances and say like, is this moral? Is this ethical? Should I have this much power? Should I give it back? And lots of ancient societies tried to solve that, right? Like, I mean, we here in the U.S., we, we've tried to initially solve that by, you know, with things like term limits. Of course, we U.S. didn't invent that. Mm-hmm. Let's think, let's take a farther back example, like uh, the Romans had consuls. You know, you only, you're at the top spot for only a year, and there was a second consul. So even, even there was a second layer of protection that, because uh, yeah. you can do a lot of damage in a year, <laughs> especially when you, yeah. especially when you have control of the armies. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, and then they yeah. would, and this, this, this evolved into really odd, uh, situations like, like in when the war with Hannibal was happening with the Romans, they would have back to back days. Like the one consul's in charge of the entire hundred thousand man army on one day, and then the other consul's in charge on Tuesday, and then the guys back yeah. on with it's, it's <laughs> kind of wild, right? And then you go to Sparta, where they had two kings at a time, right? It was like two kings. That's weird, but I mean they functioned that way for a long time. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. so and they and for a long time, Sparta was not ambitious. We think of them as this powerful, you know, uh, warring culture, but for most of their history, they were isolationists. Yeah, they they, know, they, they were, enslaved their neighbors and then just were like, okay, that's enough. We're gonna, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they maintained this sort of militant strength so that they could maintain their slave culture. Yeah, not so they could go out and attack other people. And pretty much once they started doing that is when they fell apart. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. It was also uh, their isolationism kept them from progressing yeah. culturally and scientifically and everything else. But that's a tangent. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> true, yeah true. it is. <laughs> the point is that they, throughout time we've seen cultures attempting to limit and separate power. You know, the military leaders and political leaders being different. You know, different branches of governments, councils of leaders, and so on and so on. And and it makes sense that people who have good intentions would be suspicious of greater amounts of power because they know yes. what can happen yes. and how bad it can be. And it, even they might be subject to it. And like, I'm willing to follow these rules because I don't want to be turned down this bad road. Everyone else should be also. And if you're not, you shouldn't have this power. And this is just like the power of humans. Yeah. Right? Which eventually, it's also worth noting, for, for most of history, the ability of one person to kill another person you just had to get right up in front of them and punch them or stab them or something, yes. right? But then eventually bow and arrows let you kill someone from a distance and then catapults let you kill multiple people at a time. And so this sort of the ability for an individual person to kill more people at a greater distance, now we've found nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It's a different scenario that we're in now, right? And if we look at this Westeros time, we're not necessarily talking about this with the children of the forest, but you get to the point of dragons. Right. Yeah. That's sort of the equivalent of a nuclear bomb. And so the restrictions on power become more important. Right. Yes. Yes. Because the power is so powerful. <laughs> right. One person with that power can do so much more damage that one person standing in a field with a sword, it can only do so much damage. But one person on the back of a dragon can destroy a city, you know. So- yeah. That's part of why you use the example of, of nuclear standoffs and as a example. Yeah. The whole world was terrified and to some extent still is of, yeah, if you have nukes in the hands of 
checks and balances, that's still not great, but it's better than just one person having the entire say-so of when a nuke is, is launched or not. Because like you say, yeah, that's so much power in the hands of one person. And we really just probably shouldn't have that. That's really not uh, not okay. <laughs> because yeah, it's too easy for that to go wrong, too easy for, for that. Too much rests on that one person's uh, being decent or not being crazy or... or yeah, and having that much power at their fingertips, it changes you. Yeah, yeah. Power does corrupt. It's a part of the, it's one of the themes of uh, this story that's really quite excellent and explored in a number of different ways. And like you said, like John, is someone, a good example, someone who wants to use his power to help people. Yeah, he's not seeking power out. He ends up getting it because people trust him with it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or Daenerys, and Daenerys is more of a, of a case of she's more willing to use her power to help people out and it, you know, causes some secondary issues, but blowing away she slavery is like, yeah, yeah, as a, in a nutshell, heck yeah, that's a great way to use power. Yeah. She starts off kind of naive. She just wants power. She's just like yeah. her brother told her she's supposed to, she thinks it's her right or whatever. And she hasn't even considered something like slavery. But once she does get this power, she realizes like, oh, I could use it. It's for not just this destiny that I have. It's something I can do good things with. And she might mess it up, right? Yeah. Even if she has good intentions. But uh, but it is, I think, an interesting difference between her and John. A different, interesting compare and contrast between those two and a, characters of Ice and Fire. Yeah. And Bran, coming back to him, he probably wants to do good with it. And given his disposition, the personality we're shown to him, like the way he seems to care, he has empathy. It seems like he's the type of person that would wield power well. Maybe there'll be some exceptions. Maybe, you know, George will mix some gray in there. It seems not unlikely. He is really young and immature, yes. though. Like, he does want to be a knight, and Sandor tells us what knights do, yeah. right? It's not all just yep. chivalrous parties with ladies. About, <laughs> you know? yes. And Bran's too young to really understand that, but it is, you know, and Arya too, right? It's yeah. scary to see where their paths might lead them. I mean, we talk, I think, I know I've mentioned this before, but it's a good place to, re to remind folks of it. You, you literally don't have your brain isn't fully developed at Bran's age. He doesn't have the full, like, reward system, his, his understanding of, of all these things, it's not fully developed. Like the human brain just isn't fully able to conceptualize all that at his age. And I think maybe even not at Arya's age. Now, I'm not sure how much George is using that. I mean, these characters are just bombarded with so many unusual stimuli anyway. They're so out there. There's already such massive outliers to regular children, but it fits into that whole concept pretty well anyway. Nicely, we're back to Bran here so we can talk about how he is, again, perhaps the pivot here, the example, the fulcrum, the, the seminal example. Oh, I've said the word seminal a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> so in Westerosi society, like I said, we, when we got into this particular subtopic, marriage is a really common way to broker peace. The pact doesn't say anything about marriages, but maybe the word marriage or the word wed has multiple applications. For example, when Bran is given the mysterious weirwood bowl that might be Jojen paste in his final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, well, we've got a quote here. Let's read it and discuss it. Your blood makes you a green seer, said Lord Brendan. This will help awaken your gifts and wed you to the trees. Bran didn't want to be married to a tree, but who else would wed a broken boy like him? Thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees, a green seer. 
Though Bran already had has powers, perhaps this or something like it is how they are placed into the bloodline in the first place. Right, like maybe during the pact, that was part of the rituals. Like, okay, you're agreeing to not cut down our trees, and as part of that agreement, we're going to make a few of your people, we're going to imbue them with this power, the same process that Bran is being done. Now, of course, the conundrum here is, as Brendan says, he's already got this something in him that enables this which has been passed down through prior Starks, I suppose. Um, Maybe some of the first men did too. Yeah. Maybe they right. picked out certain people that had the potential. Yeah. And, you know, they had some, you know, they bred with children of the forest. I don't need to think about that too much, but <laughs> the visuals of that, <laughs> but like some sort, maybe it was a magic ritual, some sort of combination. Yeah. And it might be really kind of brutal. Like if if there was death involved or sacrifice or, on perhaps on both sides, or I mean, even if that isn't Jojen in the bowl, it still it probably was blood, right? <laughs> it may not have been. The yeah, question is yeah. not whether it was blood so much as whether it was Jojen's blood. Uh, it, it almost certainly is blood. So, yeah. So I think, and we have the same question on the other side of things. As often as we come into supernatural topics, there is a parallel supernatural version in the fire magic side, again, for lack of a better term. How did the Valyrians get their I'm gonna connection go ahead to and say it. I'm going to go ahead and say it. If I could drink human blood and get magic powers, I would do it. <laughs> You're the man, that out there. the man with the strange you beverages. you know that that won't happen <laughs> until you try it, Tom? Yeah, next week, Sean's going to be like, I've got uh, some bang, uh, oh. some, some Mountain Dew, <laughs> some blood. <laughs> we'll be like, okay, yeah, that sounds about right, Sean. We'll just be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> As you will. <laughs> So yeah, I was going to say, like, how did the, the Valyrians, there's a similar question with them. How did they get dragon blood in them in the first place? Because it seems to be the real thing. It seems to be a real thing. Like they, there's evidence of them having additional resistance to disease. There's addition, there's evidence of the dragons, like it being easier for them to bond with dragons. There's examples of like, like Rago and, uh, and other ones of, of part of deformed children that have reptile qualities that look like dragons, which is another really speaks to the same concept. How did that start? With the children, it's a little almost easier to imagine because children are more similar like physically than than to humans than dragons are to people. <laughs> right? I don't suppose like it's one thing to imagine that humans had sex with children of the forest, but humans having sex with dragons? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that one. <laughs> That's even weirder. Probably dragons having sex with humans. Oh, now that makes sense. <laughs> that one, of course. Why didn't I think of that? That's the perfect explanation. <laughs> it could be a magic ritual. I mean, it's still crazy and weird to think about, but we know Danny used a magic ritual to, yeah. to birth her dragon egg. So, you know, maybe in the midst of that, something in the dragon blood got into her or whatever, you know? Yeah. I like that idea. I mean, I think I'm with you on that. Most likely it is a ritual, but let's consider other interspecies mixing that we've seen between human and the children of the forest or possibly giants, right? There's lots of talk of giant's blood within people like Hodor and Gregor Clegane and Brienne and things like that. And did if that's even possible, it makes sense. Yeah, the squishers, we talked about that. The even weirder hybrids of, of human deep one breeding. And we just talked about humans breeding with gods, Eleni and all that business, right? So there's a lot of versions of this from different 
contexts. They're not all children oriented. So I mean, we got Valyria, we got the giants, we got the deep ones, we got uh, ancient first men gods. So as I said at the beginning, super interesting concept to consider is how this might explain the vast, strange powers of the figures in the Age of Heroes. So, yeah, like you got people that lived really long. You got people that uh, have magic and et cetera. This could be how that started. The pact might be the event that started that, that kicked it all off, that made it regular, that took it from an exception to a commonplace thing where children, maybe it was like a golden age between the children and the humans where the majority of secrets that humans learned about the old gods were passed on. It might be when communication was most open, when peace was at its at its best. Never mind potential supernatural things. You can see how just the once the the groups start coexisting. Like, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm thoughts are spinning through my head, but I just have like the scenario running through my head where. Imagine a child of the forest is talking to a human child about their father and says, I knew your father when he was young. Well, this child of the forest is 500 years old. They knew my father when he was young. Well, my father must have been 500 years old. It's somewhere, some combination between the misunderstanding of communications, the, the desire to exaggerate things, that the nature of how stories exaggerate over time. I mean, especially if there actually was some seed of fantasy or, or, or fantasticness in the first place, you know, if there was some sharing of power that allowed a human to be 120 years old, mm. you could easily see that be stretched to 200 years old. And in what that person and their children did be combined into what that one person did, you know, so... Mm. Right on. Okay, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about this in Age of Heroes. Yeah, and I'm sure yeah. there's lots of parallels to real-world uh, mythology and how the mythology of this world are spun out. But Yeah, good point. Well said. Good said. Well point. <laughs> uh, yeah, so some of these are probably just that. Like some of the stories from the Age of Heroes probably are just stories. But they can't all be, right? We have too much real magic to, <laughs> for, to, to dismiss right. it. And one of the easiest examples is one that we've brought up in several different places here is the age. The fact that you have humans that aren't, that don't currently live that long and probably didn't long ago, except during this era of age here is where we're said that people maybe lived several hundred years, which is the age that the children apparently live. So all of a sudden, so you go from the pact where things maybe come together a bit and there's these agreements to all of a sudden, shortly after that, you have humans starting to do the same things that children do, not just the living long, but having the green seer abilities and all this stuff. At least if it wasn't already happening, it started happening a lot more. And to be clear, folks, the pact marks the end of the Dawn Age. The beginning of the Age of Heroes is marked with the pact. So that is the delineation. That's like the milestone. Even though the pact itself is a sketchy as to whether it was a single event or not, certainly it's remembered that way. We may as well treat it that way for that reason. But uh, with the caveat that, as we've explained here, it might have been a little bit different than that. But either way... This is the era we moved into where there's a lot more connection. The children and the first men are no longer in this super long species versus species battle. 
So uh, we were going to talk about And Seven Times Never Kill Man, which is a fantastic short story written by George that applies here. But we'll start with that next time. We've got a couple other things to, to talk about. So we'll close out with those couple other things and start next time with And Seven Times Never Kill Man as a segue into the Age of Heroes. Which, and I believe the Age of Heroes will probably take us multiple episodes, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Sean, what is uh, I mean, one of the things you still had left to talk about today? Well, one thing just now you made me think of, the, the idea that right around the time of the pact, we started seeing humans do some of the same things that the, the children do. I wonder if you flash forward far in the future, the, the moment that, that the wildlings come across the wall is likely to be like a landmark moment in time. Yeah. And right in the wake of that moment, we're also going to probably have stories of people like Bran and John and maybe Arya. Hmm doing things of the wild, these wildling wargs. All of a sudden, Southerners are doing that too, right? At the same time that the wildlings came across, you know, they might not necessarily be directed, but sometimes coincidence just lines up and gets attributed improperly. That's a great point, Sean. Uh, yeah, like we have these characters that have these skin-changing abilities and, and pretty much no one knows about it except for a few other people and us readers, obviously. But yeah, if those things start coming all at once, like the others invade... And at the same time, people hear about that. They're also learning these other things like, oh, there's people with these powers and they learn about that at the same time that the, ch- the others are coming and, and they get news that the children aren't dead after all. And they're still giants. If like most of humanity hears these rumors and they all come together. Yeah, it's, it's natural for when you hear rumors at the same time about related things to assume that they're connected, which they might not be in this case. That's a that's a great call, Sean. To be fair, they might be connected. There does right. seem to be a general rise in magic happening. But I don't know how much, and I guess indirectly, the general rise in magic is, it, like, part of what's prompting the, the wildlings to come across the wall is that um, they're, they're fleeing from the others, right? Yeah. But I wonder, you know, just the nature of John, if he, if it wasn't for this movement of the wildlings south, I don't know. It's unlikely that there would have been this organization to get all the wildlings to come south. But Mance was still up there. You know, how how much uniting would he have done without the, the others? Threat? Mm. And John did still take charge of the wall. That wasn't necessarily because of the others, you know. Anyway, I don't know. I, hmm. I, it, at least indirectly, some of these things are happening because of what seems to be a general rise in magic in the world. But some of it might have been destined to happen anyway. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I like the way you phrased that. Um, okay, so here is another question, kind of rel- uh, related to what we were discussing. Uh, Feral75 says, I would hypothesize that all of these magical abilities found in the First Men and Targaryens is due to the Empire of the Dawns experimenting and creating chimeras. In other words, things like the fireworms, and maybe they created that maybe why, you know, the people that have dragon blood and like Targaryens and the Valyrians, maybe it's a similar mechanism. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to, to connect it to because we do know uh, that such a thing happens. We don't know that it happened long ago, but we do know that it's happened more recently, meaning Targaryens, I keep saying Targaryens when I mean to say Valyrians, Valyrians have had blood magic for a long time. We know they've created new species through magic. And we know that that is done by combining species. We know they've made sphinxes, for example. So the, the mechanism of combining species through magic certainly has precedence through Valyria. Um, and that's why we, we speculate that there were 
even older cultures that the Valyrians learned from, that they learned some of this magic maybe from Ashai or from the Great Empire of the Dawn, which may have been connected to Ashai. Then you see like a, a, throw, a through line. You can go all the way back to this great empire that may or may not have existed so long ago. And the remnants of their magical experiments might still be present in humanity in various places around the world now. And as usual, if a, if a version of magic exists in one place, another version of it could exist coming from a different magical tradition. Um, resurrection, raising dead, different versions of prophecy. Why not different versions of hybridization of species? It's, it's pretty out there, but it's not purely theoretical because we, like I said, like Feral 75 points out, it's absolutely uh, established. I'm not necessarily in this zone with people and children, but something had to do it. And this is a, maybe our only, <laughs> maybe one, maybe our only explanation other than them actually having sex and that somehow producing viable offspring. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Feral 75 adds to the end there, the small weirwood tree growing in Night Fort might be an offshoot from the Blackgate tree below. I guess that's possible. Yeah, because we, we theorize that it's a little odd just having a, where would tree grow in the kitchen? <laughs> Which kind of throws off notions that someone was sacrificed to start that tree. <laughs> now, it doesn't totally throw that idea off because maybe it's that you have an existing weirwood, you do a sacrifice, and that opens its eyes, that activates it. You carve the face, do a sacrifice, and that's what's necessary. But uh, yeah, but it could also be something like that because if the black gate is below, there's a tree represented down there. It could push its way up through the floor. Who knows? Yeah, that's that's absolutely possible. I get the. I think the blockade is like way, way, way below that kitchen. Like the way the tunnels, the way it's described, the tunnel system is pretty vast. So I'm not. I'm not sure that works because we might be talking about like fifty stories or a hundred stories tall or something crazy like that, which might be a bit much for a tree. But maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. That might be. Heck, that tree talked. So. I mean, it's mad. There's clearly even more magic involved there when the tree, you know, requires the Night's Watch oath to open. So it's not the it's not a normal tree. Let's put it that way. All right. Well, let us uh, call it a day. Well, like I said, next time we'll start with the Jane She, who are proto children of the forest. They are invaded by human species and eventually the humans start to worship the same way as the Jane She, which is, as you can see, why I would want to make that connection here to how uh, the children and the first men made this connection, but you can see George has written about it elsewhere. So we'll talk about that next time. We'll also talk very early in the episode about the Isle of Faces, which itself is a mystery. Like the pact, it hasn't been mentioned a lot, but it was mentioned in some very prominent places and is probably one of those things George is holding on to for later. So lots more to talk about on there as we move into the Age of Heroes. It's going to be super fun. It's going to be super interesting. We've got some really cool rabbit holes, some uh, things that connect to other fandoms, as always. So, uh, unless there are any final thoughts, I will begin saying thanks to people. We did mention our Ashai and Great Empire of the Dawn episodes today. I also, of course, as usual, recommend our episodes on the Werewoods. Those that we, I'm able to move things okay. around in our feed these days. On uh, Anchor allows us to rearrange the order of episodes, so I've been occasionally moving episodes that are uh, long ago, several years old, that are related to current topics, and I move those to the front so y'all have an opportunity to, to go farther with some of these topics. 
Um, thanks again to our sponsor, GiveHerGifts.com. Remember, G-I-V, not G-I-V-E. G-I-V-H-E-R, Gifts.com. 10% off with the code Westeros. Thanks, everyone, for attending live today. Really appreciate your presence. Really appreciate your participation and helping make the, each episode better than it otherwise would be. Thanks as well to anyone who comes and hangs out on our Discord. Uh, lots of great discussions happening there as well, as well as Facebook. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Sean is at Dancing Sean. I'm at Westeros History. Ashe is at Miranese Not. And uh, you can, of course, leave a rating for us. That would be much appreciated. It's a really good way to boost the algorithm, especially now that Spotify has ratings as well. It used to just be iTunes. When I say it used to just be iTunes, when you were rating your show through your podcatcher, that just ports over to iTunes. Spotify has got a completely separate rating system now that is a little more um, intensive because it requires you to listen to the episode first, which I think is good because otherwise people do review bombing, which is really lame oh, and nothing you can do about it. There is a cat on the screen. Oh, we got a kitty. All we right. Got a kitty. So cute. I think Sean's probably muted because you can't hear anything you be words. Oh, there we yeah, go. Yeah, sorry. That's fine. This is Cora. She's gotten a lot bigger. Yeah, this was the Cora. She went from three Cora's pounds to eight pounds. had some health issues. Sean um, has, has yeah. been dealing with her. Um, she has like a liver problem. Her hmm. The blood doesn't flow through her liver. It flows over her liver. So hmm. toxins build up but, and she's got to get some medicine. But, but she's looking good. She does. Oh, look, yeah. She does she's look doing way better now that we've yeah. figured that out and got her the right medications. Well, good. Yeah. Good to get that taken care of. Pretty calico girl. Go, Cora. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks as well to Nina for her notes. She had some excellent ones today. Check her out on goodqueenalley with one L.tumblr.com. Thanks as well to Joey and Jesse for the music and Kevin McLeod as well for the Valerie Reedus intro. Michael Klarfeld had a couple of mentions today, but he deserved another for the maps and the video intro. Check out claradox.de. That's K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X.de to get your own versions of his maps. They are so good. We don't. We haven't even showcased them all because there's so many good ones now. We couldn't keep up. <laughs> we used to be like, this is the one Michael Clarfield map. That was years ago, and now there's dozens. Well, not dozens, but a lot. Uh, he also does other fandom maps, too, not just uh, Yeah, you can Song get a, a, a... We were talking about The Witcher in the chat today. Um, I was mentioning how Aziz has um, the podcast of Surprise, his Witcher podcast. But uh, Michael has done a Witcher map that you can see behind Aziz during all of their episodes. <laughs> That's right. That is very true. And he just... He's not even a huge fan of The Witcher. He just yeah. wanted to do the map. <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's also done, like, Corvair. He's done um, Middle Earth. Um, I think yeah. he's done a few people's D&D settings. Yeah. Like he's been commissioned to do that. Because oh, that'd be awesome. If you need a map done, you know who to reach out to. Yeah. Is Michael Clarefeld, is he an Expanse fan? You know, no. I don't think he is. That might be a challenging be map of space for him to make. It'd be Whoa. cool to have like the different Expanse characters around the different you gotta, you'll areas be, you of the gotta convince or whatever. Him, Sean. That's a good idea. All right. Space All right. map. I wonder <laughs> if he's ever thought about doing something like that. Speaking of The Expanse, our friends over at Here Be Dragon are covering the second half of season six, which was the final season of The Expanse. So that should be really fun. For Steven, now. For now, yes. Stephen yeah. Stark, who is the, the head guy over there at Here Be Dragon, is a huge fan of The Expanse. So, you know, he's going to be um, full of enthusiasm. And uh, we get to take a little bit of credit for introducing him to The Expanse. <laughs> Especially you, Ashea. <laughs> 
So we'll take that credit. Yeah, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. Thanks as well to our patrons for uh, keeping us financially viable. It's particularly important now in this era of, you know, we have, we never run out of things to talk about. We have a huge backlog of episodes, but there's so many other fandoms happening and a lot of other popular shows are out there. And it's been a while since anything new has come out officially, right? Um, House of the Dragon isn't out yet. Obviously, Winds of Winter isn't out yet. So in that meantime, people sign up, kind of get distracted, do other things. So it's a great time to support if you're enjoying us because we're putting out more content but we have a little bit less patronage. So, you know, not a complaint, but letting you know what's what. And we will continue to churn them out regardless of what's happening because we love doing this. So until next time, folks, you know what to do. Valar, reread us.